Hello, everyone. Thanks for watching another episode of The Naturalist Capitalist. Another big show. Just did Kim Iverson last night. I've got uh, James Lindsay on the show today and Phil Labont returning. How are you guys doing today? Killing it. I'm doing well. So, James, I'm sure most people know who you are, but why don't you just give us like a two-minute uh, introduction for those who don't? I'm Lindsay. James Lindsay. No, uh, so what do you want to know? Um, I got a PhD in math. I think that's relevant. I never do math. I haven't done math in 10 years. I will not do your calculus. I will not tutor your kids. I will not tutor you. Um, I don't do that anymore. Uh, but I have a PhD in math. And then in the middle part of the 2010s, I fell ass backwards into social justice culture war. And so I decided to take this wild ride with a couple of colleagues uh, Peter and Helen, uh, who need no introduction as well, Peter Bogosian and Helen Pluckrose. And we wrote a whole bunch of fake academic papers, pranked the academic establishment, revealed that, uh, in my opinion, we revealed that the peer-reviewed literature is not trustworthy, not because peer review doesn't work, but because peer review is captured by a corrupted uh, ideology so that they can't tell in fact, they're grounding and telling the difference between what's valid research and true and false is completely off the rails. And so when somebody says, now there's a study that, I'm like, what do I care? Like, really? Okay, great. Um, doubt, you know, uh, flashing light meme, doubt. Uh, there's a study, great. Uh, so how to lie with statistics, is that what you're saying? And or, just kidding, they don't use statistics in the humanities. So we wrote these fake papers, got seven accepted, big to do front page of the New York times, yada, yada. Being that I actually, as much as, you know, writing a fake academic papers about dog sex and fat bodybuilding and things is hilarious. Um, and I do like to be funny. Uh, I am actually a serious guy. I don't like to be, um, to talk about things I don't understand. And so this launches us like, out of a cannon into the public spotlight to talk about what in the world's going on with social justice academics. So I like, well, I better read more of it and learn more because I we learned enough basically to do the job as we were doing it, which isn't enough to be able to really talk about it. And so I dedicated all my time to studying it, to be able to comment on it. But also during the course of the project, we wrote this one paper about education and we said that we should basically abuse white male kids in classrooms to teach them about privilege. And when we submitted that, the peer reviewers wrote back and they're like, well, the paper's not ready for publication. You got to make some changes. We really like this idea. But one of the problems is that you said you're going to center compassion. And we were like, they were like, no, 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 you center discomfort. You can't recenter the needs of the privilege. I was like, oh my God, this is a genocide in the making. Uh, and I told my wife I had to quit my job and do this full time, expose this because Western civilization is on the brink. So I saw the possible collapse of Western civilization in 2017, not in the way that a lot of, and I know a lot of libertarians and a lot of conservatives are like, we saw it back at 9 11. Like, no, I saw the logic that's going to actually take it apart and how it's going to work. Like, not to discount any of those observations of other people, but I was, anyway, so I went full blast into that, end up create writing a book called cynical theories 
it sold like hotcakes explaining the postmodern aspects of the philosophy that's tearing Western civilization apart. There are other aspects that I continued to study. So I created a company called New Discourses, which is primarily a podcast now, although sometimes other information goes up there. I don't write a lot anymore because mostly I read podcast, read podcast all the time. And so I read Marxist literature. I read neo-Marxist literature. I read woke literature. I do podcasts on it more or less constantly now. And, the, and then I also fly all over the freaking world to talk to people about exactly the same thing, whatever it is that I've been reading in the Marxist and woke literature to explain to them how Western civilization is a threat. And um, I guess to wrap up my most recent trip, which I just got back from uh, Thursday, two days ago, was to Austin, Texas, where I made my third appearance on the inimitable Joe Rogan experience. Uh, and so Joe and I hashed out some of these things as one does. And so I don't know, is that a good introduction? That was great. And that was a great episode. I just finished listening to it this morning. Um, yeah, let's jump right into some of this stuff. Something interesting that's uh, similar about the three of us is I think all three of us were kind of into the new atheist movement when it yeah. first started fledging. Um, the reason I fell out from it is because it was this idea that we replace kind of emotion or feeling with philosophy but then it became obvious that pretty much no one in that movement was serious about that they just you know as soon as <laughs> trump came on the scene it all fell apart like they just gave into emotion anyway and i still agree with that sentiment to an extent that you know we should be trying to logically arrive at our conclusions and not let emotion blind us but they just proved that they were incapable of that uh, Phil, I saw you put a tweet out maybe last week, like you used to be a, uh, a Sam Harris fan before Trump. But I was wondering, what was, have you had a similar falling out? Like what, what caused, what, what, what caused you to like it at first and what caused you to be like, eh, now this isn't for me? Well, it, it was, his, his approach was, was reasonable. Um, you know, his, his approach to most things seemed to be, he would look at the, you know, look at the evidence in front of him and, and say, okay, well, this seems most likely, this seems reasonable. These things seem a little on the, you know, on the fringes of reasonable or unlikely or, or whatever. And, and he could approach subjects like that. And then as soon as Donald Trump came came around, all of that ability to behave reasonably and rationally just went out the window. So, you know, um, and I think that that was, that was uh, something that happened to, you know, an, uh, a, an incredibly large number of people. Um, I think that it even in, well, I'm not sure that it in, infected uh, the Libertarian Party so much, but um, but yeah, that was that was what turned me off to, to Harris. It was just like, you know, I was like, all right, well, this guy just, he's just whining about Donald Trump all the time. Yeah. What about you, James? Well, I mean, I my uh, kind of breakup with the atheism movement came a little bit earlier. Mine would have been almost in like 2014 with the rise of the infamous atheism plus, which stood for atheism plus social justice, plus feminism, plus probably critical race theory, but nobody was talking about it at the time. And it was mostly feminism and social justice. And it was kind of these bloggers created this extortion racket based cabal where they would smear the living shit out of anybody who didn't toe their line and basically replace, um, replace God with their version of humanism, which is rooted in social justice. Little did I realize at the time, but this is, you know, the 
long chain of evolutionary descendants of the same humanism that Marx believed that he was putting into play. Uh, it really is for social justice, as a matter of fact. Little did I know that what they were actually saying, and I don't think they knew that for the most part, or maybe at all, that they were saying that what we need is atheism plus Marxism uh, of this new variety. Because social justice as a movement or critical race theory or any of these I, things I, don't quite look like Marxism. So anyway, I saw this. I watched people getting nuked, Sam Harris among them. I came to Sam Harris's defense. I watched people getting nuked for alleged infractions against feminism that were just asinine. Um, and by 2000, even 13, I was like talking to my buddy, Peter Bergoshin. And I was like, dude, like, this is like, a like the Christians are wrong. The atheism is a religion, but they're right that there is, this is a religion. Like the people that they're looking at within the movement, like the people who are always kind of talking about the atheist community and telling everybody what the community guidelines for that community are going to be like, that is a religion yep. and their religion is social justice. And that's actually what led us to doing the hoaxes. Turns out that, you know, I start writing this book in 14, publish it in 15 called Everybody's Wrong About God. And I'm ruthless about atheism and saying it's absolutely unnecessary to even talk about. But then I have this part where I talk about how within it, this faction that's cobbled onto social justice humanism or whatever is actually acting like a religion. Uh, and I'm talking about it from a psychological and social sociological perspective. And then I'm talking to Peter off on the side and he calls me one day and he's like, dude, I just got off the stage with Penn Jillette and I need you to tell me if I'm crazy. And I was like, Peter, you're crazy. Everybody knows you're crazy, but let's get to the specifics. And so he's like, so I'm telling Penn, who's was like, the gender studies literature works exactly like the scripture for a religion of feminism and gender, whatever gender studies represents. Third wave feminism, I think, was the phrase everybody was using at the time. What do you think? And Pendulette was like, no, 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 it can't be that. And he's like, am I going crazy? Isn't it like the scripture? And I was like, dude, we got to talk because he didn't know for sure that I was writing this book and like looking into it from that angle. And I was like, it's absolutely this. And so we had this long conversation and it was that a little while later, Pete calls me maybe a year later. I mean, we're getting on down the track because the, the, the impetus that led us to do the grievance studies affair, we were already like fuck atheism at this point. Um, but the, that led us to do the, the grievance studies affair was Peter said, well, if you have a religion, the way that you debase a religion is you discredit its scripture if it's scripturally based. So if we can debase gender studies by showing by means of academic hoax that there, there's no basis to this canon of literature that they have, then the whole thing's going to topple over. And so let's write an academic hoax. So we wrote one that was a conceptual penis as a social construct. Uh, the atheists got real mad about that. The atheism movement has hated us forever, but they hated us, hated Peter in particular before that, but they hated us big time after that because we struck their gender studies shibboleth or whatever. And they're freaking angry at us. Uh, they're, they're, they're what like golden, ugly woman got instead of golden calf got like knocked over and with an ugly haircut and some glasses got knocked down. And they were really mad that like the golden feminist had been defeated. And so, but not really like there were some shady circumstances. So they wrote this, this one guy and I won't name him cause I don't like him. Um, wrote this long essay in Salon. You can look it up about the conceptual penis. You can figure out who he is. I'm not making it hard on people here. I'm just not going to say his name. And you can look him up. And he told us exactly what would have to happen for us to have proved the point that we claim we we're going to prove. And uh, so we we're like, roadmap. 
and so we go. But that's all kind of beside the point. I got back into the grievance study stuff. What made me break away was the absolute like demand that if you're going to be part of this atheist movement, then here's this community associated with it, and here are the guidelines, and the they're going to be set by this social justice feminist shit that. Like I wasn't even, I would have said, you know, at the time, like, obviously I was left wing, I'm holding up, um, I was holding up, you know, what would be old school feminist values, equality for everybody, equality for women. Like, yeah, women's scholarships are great. So maybe even better than equality, et cetera. Like I was pretty pro all that stuff. And, you know, the whole thing, you pick it, you know, the, the guy, the priest who did my wedding, uh, Anglican or Episcopal, uh, Episcopal priest is a gay dude, his husband sang at our wedding like the whole like we have no problem with any of these kind of progressive social things or whatever but i was like i'm not doing this like feminism's not going to become my freaking god and i'm out like community guidelines i'm not part of your damn community like do not rope me in and tell me how i'm supposed to behave because i just don't happen to believe in god and i was like i'm not doing this and i'm out so like in 2014 i was already like no nah, this is crap um, and it was all toxic anyway, cause all it, every atheist conference, everything online was just squabbling about how feminist people were, if they had the right opinions about things. So I started to see the so-called right opinion approach to atheism take over back. And I'm like, no, nah, I'm out. And so, you know, watching Harris go full TDS, I went full TDS at first too. And then I came out of TDS and actually I started to get mad. Uh, but watching Harris go full TDS, like if you want to talk about him specifically, like I was like, oh, he lost his marbles. OK, um, that's a shame. But and now now because I've read all the critical theory, I look at it and I'm like reading the dialectic of enlightenment where they say that the extreme of reason turns into unreason. And I'm like, uh huh. <laughs> it's like you're going to take what you think is reason and turn it into a mythology. Uh, that's what the dialectic of the post enlightenment project and liberalism is. And, you know, so reason itself is going to become a fake mythology that leads you to now, get all kinds of things wrong. And I'm like, oh my god, you spent. You just said that liberalism becomes illiberalism, and that's that it. is like, the is, argument is like the of the critical theorists, in okay. particular Max Horkheimer and Theodore Adorno, in a book they wrote in 1944 called The Dialectic of Enlightenment, yeah. which was to their goal was to unseat Western civilization. But then I look at people like Sam Harris and I'm like, shit, they got a point. Um, you know, you can take reason like the thing that Kant critiqued pure reason. And you can, the thing actually can become this mythology to where you're saying stuff like when Joe freaking cauliflower, Oh Biden, Oh Biden becomes president. Well, that, that works. Yeah. Becomes does. president. You're like, the adults are back in charge. And it's like, what are you talking about? The yeah. dude has, fucking dementia it's like the adults are not in charge the social justice warriors are driving the biden car and he doesn't care and china's got a hand on the like gas pedal or sort of foot on the gas pedal while i mean it's like this is a disaster what are you talking about the adults are back in charge because you just hate yeah. trump that much and it's like holy crap um yeah. the thing so, is um like the left oh go ahead well, it's just gone, gone, gone now. Like I, I, it's like I haven't come. I go to all speak at all these religious conferences now. I fellowship, as they say, with Christians all the time, and you know they pray protection over me and all this stuff. Like everywhere I go, and it's great. It's kind of fun, yeah. <laughs> but I don't, I don't, and I don't mean to discount it because it's like 
I know what they mean and I, I really sure. respect what they're doing and what they care, how much they care and all of this. That's why, I, that's why I never get mad when people say, oh, I'll pray for you. It's like, I don't believe in God, but I understand the point is to, is to say, I'm hoping very good things for you. So it's like, yeah, that, that can't be like to, to, to interpret that in a bad way is intentionally and dishonestly interpret, interpreting what the person is saying. Right. To the you point I mean? where I'm going to bring you into my religious practice. Exactly. A, yeah. It's like, that's kind of big. That's kind of really cool. And so yeah. now it's like I go to all these, but I haven't converted. I still don't believe in God. I have a lot more respect for the idea of what, you know, like a, in order in the universe and being humble before that, this idea of kind of natural rights and where they might come, what they might be. I don't try to answer the question of where they necessarily come from. I'm comfortable using the metaphor of, you know, that we were endowed by our creator uh, whatever that creator happens to represent, I, I don't mind one way or the other. If you want it to be God, that's fine. I'm happy to use religious metaphors now, but I'm certainly, I haven't become religious, but it's like, I look at like what was the atheism movement and it's just this like clown car that's like degraded into jalopy. It's yeah, like yeah. a piece of crap, former clown car falling apart and it's because it got eaten alive with the social justice garbage as much as they want to say no it was the alt right it was, it was libertarians fault no it was actually wasn't it was that social justice is absolutely intolerant and poisons everything unless and it's almost it's funny because they study the crap out of islam which they won't say a word about but islam means submission and they want submission also and it's like yeah. the goal with islam is that we have peace and harmony when everybody is fully submitted that's what Islam's all about, uh, submitted to the will of Allah. And for them, it's like when everybody fully submits to social justice, you know, um, nanny state That's feminists, right. then we're going to have peace and harmony and total justice. And I'm like, yeah. no, nah, screw that. Like, I'm yeah, out. The big, the big thing about all this is, you know, when when religious people are religious, there's nothing hypocritical about it. It's like, OK, fine. Um, I was talking to Kim Iverson last night about how ironic it is that the the left, which supposedly supports science so much, has become completely anti-science. And when the right has been anti-science, it's like, well, you know what? They were never claiming to be this bastion of scientific proof or whatever. So like, whatever, when they're wrong, okay. <laughs> we but never you... claimed to know how it worked. We just yeah. knew that it worked. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. So like Praise when you God. when you have someone right? holding a banner up saying like I'm right, you know, I pay attention to evidence, I'm smart, you know, I'm a genius, you guys are idiots. When those people are wrong, I'm way less forgiving and way more judgmental toward them than the people who were never claiming to be that way in the first place. Yeah, it's totally the thing. And if you've read your Foucault, not that I'm exactly a fan of Michel Foucault, but if you've read your Foucault, you know, like the kernel in his philosophy, if we can call it that, the kernel of, of absolute value that he brought to analysis is that's exactly the thing that you got to watch out for because it's a calamity when it comes up is when you have people who believe that they are the arbiters of science and truth and evidence and everything else and they invoke that authority upon themselves to establish and abuse their own power now he said that that's what's always happening which is not that that's that's crazy that's crazy town but that when he's he's if you take it as a warning this can happen it can happen easily it's been happening a lot for the last 200 years since the enlightenment 
And when it happens, you're setting yourself up for like basically the same problem the Nazis or that Stalin created, uh, you know, to invoke scientific authority like whatever we say is the science and everybody who doesn't believe it is crazy or ignorant or a bad person or whatever, you've got a major problem on your hands. And so Foucault as a descriptive, giving a descriptive warning is talking straight into this. And it's kind of ironic because, you know, a lot of these left-wing devotees of of social justice or whatever that are deep up in the atheist stuff are, are fans of Foucault. They've read Foucault. They claim to understand Foucault. And they don't have the capacity to recognize that they have become literally the thing that his most poignant warning is about. Um, and I'm with you though. It's like, if you're going to go around and say, we're the party of science and then science is like literally whatever some democratic strategist makes up and says, we're all going to do, or like some, some corrupt official at the CDC now says we all have to go along with, and it's going to change in a few weeks. No, 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 Hold up. You are not of the science. You have created an idol out of the science and propped it up as a God. And may Moses come down from the mountain and slaughter a third of you for it. Like, seriously. <laughs> yeah, the first time, or one of the first times that I actually uh, saw you, James, talk was when I think you were talking to Tim Pool with Peter and Helen, and it was you discussing whether or not social justice has become a religion. And I, I think that was like probably like... 2016 or something like that maybe 18 18 it was february of 2018 okay um it's really an interesting little story that's going to tie a few threads together so peter and helen and i cooked well cooked up a pretext and mike nana actually from australia even cooked up a pretext to all go to portland together because we're secretly working on the grievance studies affair so that meeting with tim that was after you guys did the grievance study no it was in the middle okay so this is crazy okay so here's what's going on tim peter's a very generous guy so tim's literally staying at Peter's house with us. We're all staying at Peter's house. So what happened was we had arranged to give a talk at Portland state and to teach, to like group teach Pete's class a couple times at PSU, but we, the turning point and college Republicans invited us to do a talk is intersectionality a religion in February. I think it's February 19th, but I have to look again of, and it's, why would you remember that? I'll tell you why, uh, of 2018. And so we gave that talk and then Tim interviewed us out in the hall immediately after that talk. And that'd be what you saw. Yeah. And then we all literally, including Tim went out. I don't think Tim went out to dinner with us. Actually, we went out to dinner and we all went back to the house and Tim was downstairs. We were in the kitchen and that's the night while either during the talk, I don't remember the exact hour or while Tim was interviewing us or approximately then the dog sex paper got accepted. The first paper that got accepted that happened while that was happening. We didn't know it. Yeah. I I saw the scenes video when, when, uh, that Mike did that. Yeah. I checked my email when we got home. I was the only one of us that wasn't drunk for that scene. They had all got plowed on, you know, it's a them. scandal now because they're all like kind of faith-based or whatever. They all got drunk on turning points dime uh, <laughs> <laughs> that night. And I had yeah, two was... drinks, but I don't like to be drunk generally. So I didn't get drunk. I just had a couple drinks with dinner and no big deal. And so we went back and I'm like, dude, get your camera, Mike, get your camera. Like something happened. And he's like, comes up and you've seen the scene. What is it? What is it? And I was like, dude, we got our first paper. And he's like, our first win or whatever. And he's like, Oh my God. And then we went bonkers for like two hours completely in their inebriation and our enthusiasm and our excitement, completely forgetting that there's a fucking journalist downstairs who could have blown the whole thing for us. Tim pool. 
And um, it wasn't like our, like we had, we get, we get along with Tim. We definitely, I get along with him great now. I've been to his place, you know, I've been on his, his, his Tim yeah. cast, but. Um, I was very excited I, the first time you were on Tim's show. At the time <laughs> we didn't know him. And so we did this like private interview and Pete's like, you know, a little like guest house thing that he had behind his house that he built out of his old garage. And like, it went way off the rails. So like, it didn't go well at all. And so, um, like we didn't know for a long time, like what did Tim hear? Is Tim going to like blow our cover? And then when I went to his place to go on Tim cast last year, I was like in February last year. So three years later, I'm like, by the way, that night you were downstairs, you know, at Peter's house was the night that we made that video when the dog park paper got accepted, whatever. And we were, and he was like, you guys were, I didn't know what you were doing, but you guys were making so much noise. We almost came up and it's like, yep. <laughs> so he didn't hear Like he couldn't hear through the floor what it was. So that would have been, that's what that was. So that, that would, that that's an exciting evening in my life. It sure, turns sure, out, sure. but you saw the part where I didn't know it was exciting yet. <laughs> yeah. Well, I mean, I've, I've been, uh, I mean, I've been fairly, a fairly, I guess, probably too online person for a while. I think that Relatable. that's one of the, one of the perks <laughs> of my job is that I get to do what I do for work and I can, you know, scroll on doom scroll the internet and sit there and worry about Western civilization with uh, my new friend, James Lindsay. Um, but as soon as I heard you talking, I was like, this guy gets it because for a long time, I saw a lot of changes and I, in, in the way that pop culture looked at certain things that I felt were fairly, um, fairly liberal positions and fairly normal American, not conservative, you know, you're, you're, I'm, I'm from new England, you know, so I'm not like what you would consider a Southerner, but I I'm familiar with Southerners because my mom's from South Carolina. So I saw the difference between cultures and I understood that, you know, and I understood the, the way that some people in the South think and the, and the way that people in the North think. And, and, you know, I never thought of liberals as being, you know, problematic. Um, but then you see that there is a difference between liberals and progressives. And I think that that's, that's a distinction more people need to be aware of yeah. that just because you're like, when you're liberal, you believe things like, I think that property rights are okay. And that's fundamentally where your rights come from. Your first property is your body. That's your first property. Mm -hmm. So you own your body. That's, and then from your body and your time, that's where all of your property rights come from. And that's a non-religious way to understand property rights as far as I'm concerned. Mm -hmm. And when people start saying, well, you know, what is property or questioning that, you know, making a distinction between prop private property and public property and, and stuff, then you stop being a liberal. Then you become something different than a liberal because a liberal yeah. believes in the individual first. And so That's for right. me, it's a really easy distinction. Um, and I couldn't articulate it this way uh, 10, 15 years ago, but I mean, I'm going to plug right now a little bit, but I wrote a record in 2006 called The Fall of Ideals. And it was me sniffing around at these ideas. I couldn't articulate it. I didn't have the background in, in, yeah, I, I didn't go to college and I certainly didn't go to, you know, I certainly wouldn't have gone to a, a, a you know, the a philosophy class back when I was a kid. I was a, I mean, I, I yell at a stick in a metal band, you know, I'm, I wasn't that kind of dude, but I, I understood that there was something going on in the culture that wasn't adding up. And there were things that were important that I thought were important to America that people didn't think were important anymore. Mm -hmm. And uh, one of the things that when I saw, 
you know, Jim talking about the things that he talks about, I was like, you know, this guy sees the same kind of danger that I see in these ideas because these ideas, um, these ideas really strike at the ideas that make America a, a possible country. Because if you don't have property rights, America is not possible. Yeah, you can't, you right. can't have America. I mean, you can have, you can have a place called America that's in the same spot, but you <laughs> right, can't exactly. have America. Right. And so it's intrinsic. Yeah. It's, it's what it, defines it's, Amer the American experiment. Absolutely. 100%. And, and it that's also the Lockean view, right? Exactly. It's and it's the philosophy. Life, liberty, so like, and property. And so when you started, to, when I started hearing you talk about Hegel and I started listening to the podcast that you talk about Hegel and understanding that it's a really different philosophy, that it's a fundamentally different philosophy to be a progressive than to be a liberal. Um, I think that that is, is one of the most important things that I think uh, the average person can understand too. I think that a lot of the problem with these ideas is you really need to understand to understand Marxism, there's so much theory, and you and then and your James says all the time things like uh, they use the same dictionary or they use the same uh, dictionary, but not the same. Um, they use the same vocabulary, but not the same yes, dictionary. Exactly. Actually, I was and, reading a Marx a Marxist book, not to cut you off, but we'll go back to sure. it. But just the other day, and it even says like it's an old joke. They they say that it's it's an old joke that if you get two Marxists in the same room, uh, that you know they virtually they'll agree on the definitions of virtually no words. Yeah. Yeah. And that's, and it's, it's that, that to me it means that it is nefarious. It is pernicious. It is evil. If your yeah. intent is to deceive someone so that way you can acquire power, there is no more clear definition of evil, except for maybe using, except for maybe exercising that power to make someone else suffer for your own pleasure. I guess that's more evil, but sure. really it's, it's hard to get more evil than, you know, lying to people, deceiving people. So that way you can, so you can acquire power to use over them. Yeah. I That's mean, evil. It, it's, well, it's evil, what, period. literally what is the, one of the names given to Satan in the Bible is the deceiver. Yeah. <laughs> it's like, uh, yeah. Yeah. And it's, it's hilarious funny, though, to that, think that three, three, three atheists are here talking about why, why ideas in the Bible and stuff are still relevant, even though we all three would completely say, yeah, when you're dead lights out, man, game over. Like, yeah, that's I kind of want to give a talk right now that would have the title um, "You Live in the Bible in a Bible Story," but I'd right? have to re I'd have to read up a little bit. I mean, I've read the Bible, but it's been a while since I've read the Old Testament, and that's There's really a lot of Bible there, James. You'd have to you'd have to refresh. Yeah, well, I it's think a long book. You'd agree with this, Phil? Like we've talked about the idea. I mean, you and I, we love Lysander Spooner and what he said about sure. the Constitution, but to completely throw the Constitution out as completely useless and saying that there's no valuable lessons we could draw from it. I think very similarly about the Bible and not just the Bible, but like any, you know, even terrible people, like you can probably find something good about like perseverance or something in a horrible writing, like mind comp or something like there's no writing. Easy that tiger. Write. Easy. Yeah. Easy. <laughs> I read that recently. If we want to talk about that book, Rated by the way, yeah. I read that whole book. Like, oh yeah. In December, we, so. There is no good yeah. part of mind comp. <laughs> well you know that's what i'm what saying like there's a very interesting part called. actually yeah yeah that's um, gonna get clipped now i shouldn't have, i shouldn't use that one but like any like i mean any writing like no matter how horrible it is there's probably something right you can find in it yeah. but especially good writings like the constitution and the bible to just like throw everything out because you haven't like listened to any of it i think would be a mistake 
Yeah, I take it back. I, I, I actually, I don't want you to clip that out. You can, of course, if you want, but I'm going to no, grab a hole. No, no, I meant someone's going to take oh, that clip sure, got and put you. it on Twitter. Because, yeah. I, <laughs> because I felt like it's necessary for the research that I've been doing. I actually read Mein Kampf mm -hmm. uh, in December, and I was like, I'm reading it. It's not a particularly pleasant book. And the further you get in, it's like, it gets bad. Like, mm -hmm. there, by the time you get to, like, chapter 11, for sure, which is the one where he really lays everything at the feet of the Jews. There's nothing good in that. That's the weird race chapter. Like it's all about racial superiority and like superior races shouldn't mingle with inferior races because it'll only make them inferior. And it's like, it's bad, right? Nothing good there. But at the beginning, he's got this whole thing. I think in the second chapter, but I'd have to double check where literally he's like, I became so angry arguing with the Marxists that I lost my, you know, and it's like the Marxists are the problem. The Marxists are subverting society. The Marx his. And then, then he like somewhere in that same chapter is like, and that's when I realized all the Marxists are Jews. And then you can see where he goes off the, where, where like the train comes off the track. But when you see what he, like the way he describes his interactions with the Marxists, you're like, huh? You know, it's really hard to avoid. And he, he actually more or less confesses that dealing with Marxists drove him crazy. And a lot of people, I think, not to say that you'd find Hitler relatable, but could find that relatable with the well, yeah, especially like in this country, the, like seeing so many people go crazy in that direction because of how insane the liberals are, you know, like the, they try to drain, uh, they try to blame all the extremism on just these crazy people coming up with crazy ideas. And it's like, well, you know, when you're constantly demonizing them and you're like saying all this shit about them all the time, they're going to turn to something crazy like that. And, you know, like like you're saying, when you read through that, you can see how it happens. Yeah. I mean, you can actually see because Hitler, frankly, knew what he was doing. He, he even said, you know, that the Marxists believe they have no ideology, but they obviously have one and I'm going to expose it. But what has to replace it is a different ideology. And then he gives his weird Aryan race ideology and German nationalist pride ideology as the religion that's supposed to replace, uh, you know, both the old religions of Germany and Marxism and to, to defeat them. And he's like, I stole a bunch of their techniques to use to go for And so you can actually use it now as a clear roadmap of like, that didn't, that wasn't the right way to deal with this problem. Um, and the part though, where he's analyzing like the Marxists and his interactions with them, it's like, you know, he, it, history's rhyming in that regard. And therefore it becomes a very important, I think, signpost and warning for people like literally about a hundred years later, because it would have been in the 1920s when he was writing that. Like, it's a very important signpost. Like, okay, that was literally the reactionary response to Marxism and the other issues in Weimar Germany. And we don't want to go there. And you can see where, he, like I said, you can see literally where he's like, and then I, he's like, I drank my bottle of milk and yelled at them until I was hoarse in my throat and they never will change their mind, blah, blah, blah. And then like a paragraph later, he's like, and that's when I started to read and I read their, their theory and I read their, their ideas and I read the Marxists. And then I realized they're all Jews. And I'm like, oh no. And you have to say, oh no, because there are actually a frightening number of people right now who are drawing that same conclusion. They're reading right. Herbert Marcuse and realizing he was, Jewish. They're reading Max Horkheimer and reading, realizing he was Jewish. They're reading the neo-Marxists and realizing that they're Jewish. They're looking at the financiers and saying, wow, a lot of these people are Jewish. They're looking at who started the Frankfurt School and Felix Veal, and he's they're financed it. And he's this rich Jewish guy. And they're, then they're like, aha, I'm reading through and I'm seeing they're all Jew. And they're like, don't do that. Right. Stop. 
Stop. Yeah. That is not what's going on. They are communists. <laughs> communists. And then they want to make the leap that Hitler made, which is Jew and communist is the same thing. And, the and thing they're is not the, the same one thing. Of the one right. of the dangers is that is is communists want to do that. They want yes. you to do that. They want you to make they want you to to dance around that or look at that so that way they can shove you so they can say, see, we're just anti-fascist. We're just anti-Nazi. There is nothing that communists want more than to call everybody Nazis. That's why they have the 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 slogan you know scratch a liberal and a nazi bleeds or a fascist yeah. bleeds they believe that if you're not a communist then you are just that, that, that if you're not a communist then you're a fascist there's only two things you can be because to them the arc of history is either towards communism towards the progressing towards communism that's why anytime i hear the word progressive i'm like you're just a communist eventually yeah. or fascism they think there's two tracks that's it they that's right. That eventually, and that's a neo-Marxism invention. Yeah, by the way. totally. The old school communists didn't believe that fascism had not hit the scene yet, and so yep. with Marx, he just thought that there was an extra, an inexorable track to heaven in the form of the kingdom made on earth in communism, and then obviously all the catastrophes of the early 20th century. The neo-Marxists invented basically the communist version. They, you have the communist heaven in, in communism, and they invented the communist hell, which is fascism as their kind of huge dichotomous thing that they fight against. And that's a neo-Marxist invention, not actually a Marxian invention. And so they genuinely, since at least the 1940s, have believed adamantly that there are two trajectories for, for free societies. They are unstable inherently. They will eventually collapse. And there are two possible outcomes. One is communism, which is a utopia kingdom of God remade on earth, garden of even Eden that we are all, uh, I, I said garden of even, because I actually wrote a satire about trying to make the garden of Eden, even, uh, for the woke, but yeah, because everything's <laughs> equitable. So the, it is literally, I mean, they even allude to it. Marx alludes yeah. to it. Marcuse alludes to it, getting back into the garden and how you're going to achieve it. So it's our birthright to live in the garden of Eden and communism represents it for them. So there's heaven or we're going to collapse into a fascist totalitarianism and then we're going to have hell. And that's one of the reasons that they say, you know, every time it's failed, it collapsed into some kind of a fascist thing like Stalin, they would say is a fascist. He installed state capitalism. Mao did the same thing. So real communism has never been tried yet. Yeah. And Which because is the most, it's, <laughs> it's the socialist, uh, the socialist uh, Twitter account, or the official one from England. That's just constantly telling everybody, you know, uh, constantly. Real <laughs> that's all they ever do. That's all they like, do. You're the most tenacious account on Twitter. Good for you for having having the tenacity to sit there and just reply to every capitalist. Oh, silly capitalist socialism has never been tried. Yeah, it's like it's it, that's the same though as saying you know we're not in heaven. It's yeah. like you know really going to heaven hasn't happened yet, or the rapture hasn't occurred yet. That's all it means. The rapture, mm -hmm. by the way, is revolution in communism. Uh, they have the, their whole thing. This is the whole eschatology is there. The whole thing, but. Um, this is like, that's very much religious in that regard. And they play that game and they play the game intentionally. So you're absolutely right, Phil. They want nothing more than for people to start acting like Nazis. So they can call you Nazis or start acting like fascists. So they can call you fascists or start being racist. So they can call you racist. They are rigging the game. It's called mid-level violence. It's a political yeah. warfare strategy. They know what they're doing. 
right now they're losing political warfare for the first time in a very long time, but they've been winning this so successfully. They want somebody to flip out and drop the N word at some critical race theorist. And then you've always just wanted to say the N word or to hit somebody. You've always just been a fascist or a Nazi or violent or, you know, abuse women or whatever the thing they want you to do that. It's a trap that they are setting by playing the mid-level violence game. If you want mid-level violence, in action, watch anything Antifa does. They're actually yep. very disciplined. They know how to do it. If you want a good metaphor for what it is, it's that kid who's doing this. I'm not touching you. I'm not touching you. I'm not touching you. And you know they're they are aggressing, right? It's, they are it's blatantly the kid aggressing. Got, it's it's the dude that got in the kid's vase from Covington County uh, High it is. School. That's the exactly kid, right. It's just the guy. It's banging that drum right in his face, like just daring him to do something. And it's because like, his options are to to fold and to, as the parlance yep. of the day goes to cuck himself yep. or to overreact and like freak out and look like an asshole. So it's mid-level violence either causes an underreaction or an overreaction. And it turned out that the Sandman there actually nailed it. He just yeah. grinned. He did just sat what there I... peacefully and had a look on his face that was like, screw you, buddy. At and that it age, turns out it... to be, that's exactly the right response. I would have messed that up so bad if I were him. Most people would have. Age, I would have like kicked the guy or something. I would have ruined. It would have been like it. some jujitsu match going on right now. <laughs> it would have been bad, be terrible. Oh, yeah, God, and it's amazing. You know, he he held his ground and mm -hmm. he did it right. Um, what's scary about the present moment, though, is that the Nazis and the, or the fascists, if you will, and the communists have figured out how to get in their little handshake agreement. They are actually they they use China as the model. China was communist. They opened their market. And how is their market run as a fascism <laughs> right. run by the well, CCP? Yeah. So what are we doing here in the West? We're creating this world economic forum that's going to be a public private partnership. In other words, fascism by definition that the state is now going to partner with the big corporations who are going to run everything and do all the things the states can't legally do, like get around the constitution, like free speech or whatever and do censorship, et cetera. Although, Dumbass Biden's coming out there and saying things like tech companies should stamp down on misinformation, which actually literally violates the First Amendment explicitly. Yeah, so I'm, they're, I'm they're, actually grateful for Biden, by the way. Yeah, Thankful there's there even so a conspiracy terrible. theory, the good guy Biden conspiracy theory that he's flooding <laughs> it on purpose. Um, he's been planning it for decades. He's just been absolutely psych. awful. So he can be like, eh, in the future, someday I'll be able to save America by yeah, right. snapping them out of their trance. By well, pretending you know, there, I'm there was, super dementia. There, um, was the, there was the Trump is a Russian ass since, since, the eight, since like 86 or whatever that, yeah. that a serious person that we're supposed to look at still today and take seriously on stupid morning Joe. Okay. Yep. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So yeah, so here we're going to create this this fascism in the West. And what's going to be inside of that? Well, social justice, communism yeah. is going to be yeah. inside of it. So we're going to create a fascism with communism inside here in the West to compete with the communism with fascism inside in China. In other words, we're going to create Oceania because East, East Asia already got built up. And it's like, I read that book. Mm -hmm. is, is it is it? Have you guys noticed that we actually are far closer to um to brave new world than we are to uh 1984. Um, 1984 yes i am noticing that they have dialectically synthesized the two of them into this mishmash and along with other things and one of those we hope is not soylent green <laughs> yeah i've noticed like uh, go, go okay go on <laughs> the one they They've were wrong about was uh fahrenheit 451 like they don't actually have to censor that much they can just flood the market with stupid information like i mean they do go after a few figureheads 
But for yeah. the most part, no one is even paying attention or looking for the truth because they have no idea where to look because there's, you know, you have so much bullshit from the establishment and then you have yeah. charlatans who jump on the, you know, the, the fantastical. And so the truth is so hard to find. You don't actually, even though they are starting to ramp up censorship, there are tons of people like we're doing this video right now and they're not like actually stamping us down yet. No, you know, no, but, but I think we've all been, James gets put in, in timeout all the time. I've been booted not off Instagram and you've been booted I can't off of be, Twitter, right? I can't yeah, be at mentioned on Instagram at all right now. You like I, got 500 I, messages last, about I tried to do it last night. You can't <laughs> at message yeah. me. And like, it's because I put out, they said too much COVID misinformation. Like some of the COVID misinformation I got, got dinged for, was it was like so? I said this on Rogan. It's so transparently a joke. It's it's like funny. Yeah. I tweeted. I was at a. I was in Utah. Okay. So I was out there for this thing. We went to this restaurant to grab lunch, meet with some different people while I'm in the state. And the guys like, we have awesome onion rings. And I'm like, let's get I'm like, let's do that for the table, right? So they bring out these onion rings, and no shit, they're pretty good. Like, they were up there. And so I pull out my phone and I tweeted, "Good onion rings." can cure and prevent COVID-19. And that was fact-checked. You know, official sources say that onion rings cannot. And like, are you onion rings? No, no fun Are you allowed. out of your fucking mind? I can't and so wait it's for like, the future when no fun is allowed at any, at any point. So what yeah. you actually, what they've actually created by this flood the zone with bullshit plus selective censorship is, and I don't mean because I'm aggrandizing myself here. I don't mean to do that. But what they're doing is they're actually putting a mark on the people you should listen to. Yeah. And it's the people that they censor. The mm -hmm. very, the relatively few number of people that they censor, they're basically saying, this guy's saying too much that's true. Let's kick Robert Malone off of Twitter. Oh, if everybody's going to go find out what he has to say. If you've you never know, been booted off of any social media site, you've never said anything interesting. Yeah. You're not right, trustworthy exactly. unless you've been or funny from something. Apparently. Yeah. So I got a question for you, Lindsay. Um, like I'm, uh, I mean, I'm a critic of Israel, but I find that so many like critics of Israel, they go down the rabbit hole of Holocaust denial and the stuff we were talking about earlier. So I want to mirror that to something else, like talking about critical theory and critical race theory in particular. Is there a difference do you find between people talking about like how the war on drugs or the war on poverty or any of these government policies have disproportionately screwed over black people. Do you find a difference between that and critical race theory, or is it just all wrapped in the same thing? I just want your opinion. So in a way, critical race theory works as a gigantic obfuscation so that, so we can say that sometimes just to be very oversimplistic, sometimes left-wing policy screws over black people. Sometimes right-wing policy screws over black people. This is undeniable. I and mean, it's easy to see how this is possible. Uh, you could have straight up outright racist legislation or whatever, blah, blah, blah. Okay. Critical race theory, I think, was in besides being, you know, a tool of Marxism to evolve into the American context and be very uh, effective, which is its key purpose. But if you actually read like the early writings where it was kind of getting developed, it exists to hide the fact, to make it so that right-wing policy that affects black people is always racist and no left-wing policy that hurt black people ever exist, ever existed. It all helped. Like so much can actually of the damage to the black community. I hate that word, the community. There is no the black community, just like there was no atheist community. But that has injured 
you know, black prospects in America overall, so much of what has injured black prospects of America overall boils down to bad policy decisions and incentive structures that were built in the great society programs coming out of the Absolutely. late 1960s. I love LBJ. Let's go. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> that's right. And so sucks. they, those were meant to be progressive policies. They failed dramatically. And a lot of what critical race theory does is meant to paper over that, to make it look like it was some structural racism that is pervasive throughout society that actually emanates from the secret right-wing center-right base of the country. And it wasn't just a failure of progressive policy. So when you get into like the legal and political aspects of in, in the in the traditional form of political, not in the Marxist definition of everything being political uh, or their their political ambitions. But when you look at when they make commentary about legal and political things in critical race theory, the vibe that I get overwhelmingly is it is that every failure of progressive policy has to be somehow projected as a failure of the society instead so that the left is never held to account or responsibility for its own failures, which creates a really perverse circuit or even incentive structure that every time the left fucks up a policy that has to do with race, they can then use the failure of their policy to get more left wing advancement. And that is a very dangerous, that's like an accelerant, right? That's an, that's a, it's an accelerating wheel. So we're going to put into place this policy about welfare and the great society. Whoops, this accidentally broke all the black families. So now black achievement in schools is low. Look how bad our achievement in schools is. Must be that the schools are racist. We need to now remake the schools with more progressive policy. Wow, look how bad everybody's doing in schools. It must be that everybody's you know super racist. So now we have to add in that racism is a public health threat or whatever. And so they have this like, it's like the, I'm picturing that thing like with the, the, um, Hot Wheels on the track from when I was a kid. And it was like that thing. Sometimes you can get it to run over and it speed it up. And it's like they're on like a loop and it's like zoom, zoom, zoom. And as they would phrase that, then they get back to the point about Hegel and the religion or everything. And so the dialectic progresses. They have this accelerating dynamic for more left wing shit policy by papering over the failures and projecting that failure onto somebody else, which is the society at large, and then saying we have the only solution to the problem that they actually are creating. So I think a lot of what critical research is doing is is hiding. It's designed, in addition to being Marxism, et cetera. And part of what it's designed to do is to hide left-wing failures in racial policy and because it misdiagnoses the problems or the, the things that are causing them and tries to fix problems in the incorrect way it like you said it, it accelerates the problem and you're literally just going to continue to tear the society apart because as the dialectic continues the whole point is to Pr uh, present it with its contradictions and tear apart society so that we can right. find the the kernel of perfection in it. That's right. So, the the perfect and the point society. Really, is and all they do is they just within. screw everything up. That's right. <laughs> and they have an incentive to keep screwing things up. But I, you know, I actually as bad as and it to is, make I it don't worse think... intentionally to make it worse. That's something that I think we need to drive home. They the point is to make society worse. I heard you talk about Marcus right. saying that like like um, that. It's we have a good life now, but it's not a perfect life. It's not a communist life. And so what they want to do is make the life that we have now, the people that have decent lives, the people that own homes, that own property, that own that have equity in their homes, that have their lives planned and that are in spots where they're not destitute and where they're not scraping to, to get by. They're going to take away from those people. 
because they need to make society worse. They need to make more people suffer. The intent is for you to suffer. So you'll want a revolution. That's when Lenin famously said, accelerate the contradictions in response to the millions that were starving. And that exact sentiment was just echoed by Xi Jinping in his opening comments to the World Economic Forum Davos weirdo thing. He actually, if you listen to him, he actually says it's an old Chinese belief. No, you're doing the Marxist version of Taoism here, which is, you know, it's Marxist Leninism with Chinese characteristics. There's an old Chinese belief that everything contains its contradiction. No, that's a Hegelian belief. Taoism doesn't quite say that. It, the, 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 the Taoist view is a bit different, but it's an old Chinese belief that everything contains its contradictions. So we have to move according to the contradictions. And he's like, she does this whole thing about that. And it's like, shit, he's just echoing Lenin. And so what it is, what is it? It's accelerate the contradictions. It's to make to make the problematics, the unhappiness, the misery, the inability to enjoy anything more and more and more visible to make oppression visible is what they do so that you will accept the idea of revolution. Now, that said, I don't act with certain people like Lenin or with Xi, like they know what they're doing, right? So I think for them, it is intentional. For your average SJW person, I don't think it is. Even for like fairly like significant theorists, they have just adopted the dialectical faith. Like, I don't even think that they realize what they're doing. Like, I don't think there was this people. I don't, there may have been some strategists coming out and saying, well, let's put this great society and we'll screw over all these people. Then we'll use what the failure. I don't think that's what it is. I think what they have is a, the ones who are just Marxist religionists rather than like the hardcore Lenin type activists, strategic activists. What you have is this belief that there's a base and a superstructure. That's Marxism. In society, the base in critical race theory is people of color. They're the real cultural producers. And then you have the superstructure who are filled with the ideologists. And they've created the ideology that defines the structure of society. And everybody has to play within that. And the name of that ideology for critical race theory in the West is white supremacy. So everything that doesn't work, they have no explanation except Kendi's razor. It was racism. Everything that doesn't work, it was racism somehow. And so that includes their own policy. So if their own policy didn't work, it was foiled by the fact that we have a superstructural racism problem, which therefore justifies even more need to have the revolution. And so this is like, the, like there's a lot of people who don't understand the first thing of Christian theology, but they're all in on like Christianity and the whole thing. Well, there are a lot of people who don't really understand the first thing about Marxian strategy or Marxist theory, but they 100% have adopted the underlying premise that there's a superstructural system in place and that superstructural system is guarded by an ideology and that ideology pervades and and shapes the entire society. It's the organizing principle of society. So when anything goes wrong, it must go back to that thing. And it turns out in critical race theory, whiteness is the scapegoated form of property holding and white supremacy is the ideology that justifies having whiteness in the first place. So it must be that. So I got a question. Um, How do we how do we diffuse this? Because, uh, you know, we've identified the problem that the Marxists are creating the fascists and, you know, it's just this back and forth Mm -hmm. ridiculous game. So it's hard as like a libertarian or someone who realizes all this is going on to inject yourself into the con uh, into the conversation without being culturally irrelevant. Like you can't just ignore the culture war. You have to realize what's going on and you have to take Mm -hmm. part in it without being an an idiot. So I was just wondering, what's the best way do you think to inject yourself into the conversation with relevance without 
playing into the stupidity. I mean, it depends on what you have to offer. Everybody has to go according to their thing. So if you just are like solid libertarian dude and want to talk about principles, then you can do that and you inject yourself into the conversation by making it relatable to what people are seeing. This is what's actually going on. This is crazy. Here's a principle that if we were holding this instead, it would be less crazy. And here's why. Like you can do that. But I mean, the general picture, how do you def stop a Marxism? There are actually just a few paths to that. One is it turns out, believe it or not, exposing it for what it is this snake oil inversion of reality poisonous approach will cause most people when they actually grasp and understand what it is to say, no, we're not doing that. And then they just don't go along and that can actually grind it to a halt. Uh, and what grinding it to a halt looks like is figuring out who the people are who are pushing it and making sure they don't have any access to power. If they stop pushing it, maybe they can have access to power back, but they can't be in the school board or whatever. They cannot be, uh, you know, they can be an editor, I guess, at like CNN or whatever, but we're just not going to pay attention to CNN if it's going to be full of Marxists. The the idea is very simple. It's expose and remove from power. That's really all it boils down to. Now, in that vacuum, I hate to say this exact sentence, let this get clipped out. Hitler was right. Something has to fill that vacuum. <laughs> now, you made me look like I, the good I see, guy in I, the conversation I, I so literally, far. <laughs> I'm, like, I'm like, you're like, how do you do anything about it? I'm like shaking my head. I'm like, no. <laughs> but you see this is the thing it's hard to get it's hard it to get a tick out man it's hard to get a tick out <laughs> it is so but but here's here well yeah you, it is and it's very hard to get a tick out they don't let go I no. love this channel these people will not let go of power because that's their crack is mm -hmm. power having power and most of them like, get installed through the bureaucracy and exactly and, and it's not easy change and no it's hard. So, but 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 what what is correct is you do have to have that principled stance, that outlook on the world, if you will, that fills in the gap. Now, Hitler was right that you need one. He was not right about what the one is. Right. He had this crazy nationalism instead of. I mean, I'm not a huge fan of the very Hegelian Francis Fukuyama, but he I forget what his exact word was, but a very mild nationalism as kind of an antidote to social justice. And I think that that's probably correct. You have to, it's almost like this, and, and my friend Helen Pluckers is really good about this, like this little bit, you're a nationalist, but you're like a little bit self-aware, ironic, like it's it's just fun, right? It's like the way that the sexes joke across one another and it's fun versus when it turns into somebody being an asshole. You can do the same thing like, oh, because you're a French, you know? And it's like, well, what's that supposed to mean? And then you make some joke and it's just meant to like tease and like, oh, well, I'm just a stupid American, you know? The way we talk we about like TV, Canada you know? And, and yeah, so you have these like yeah. cute little yeah. like, so that, that that's a thing. I don't really want to get lost in that. He created this hyper-nationalistic, crazy mostly Aryan race religion thing that was totally batshit. And that was not a good idea. We have, on the other hand, something that's not batshit. We have life, liberty, property, pursuit of happiness. So we mix Locke and Jefferson and we can articulate why those matter. Like you talked about um, property rights and you talked about owning your body first. And if you read what Locke says, where does that go? If you read what Locke says, why do we, why does he say that the fundamental and, uh, you know, rights endowed by the creator are life, liberty, and property. And it's pretty simple just to oversimplify his argument a little bit. Well, if you have a right to life, they can't kill you for doing or saying the wrong thing. If you have a right to liberty, they can't lock you up for doing or saying the wrong thing. And if you have a right to property, they can't unhome you as the phrasing goes. They can't throw you out in the street. They can't 
take away your ability to have shelter or food or your basic needs met if you can provide those for yourself because you're doing or saying the wrong thing. So the power, the, the government doesn't have the right to throw you out of your your means of, of living. They don't have a right to throw you uh, into jail and they don't have a right to kill you, to make you conform to whatever they're saying. This is a beautiful philosophy already. And, it, and, and it's simple. And, it's simple when you, when you think of it like you do not, the government doesn't have that right because your neighbor doesn't have that right. And if your neighbor doesn't, your neighbor and his buddy don't have that right. And that's if your right, neighbor exactly. and his buddy don't, then all the guys at the, at the bar down the street, all those guys together, they don't have the right. So you expand it out and it's simple to understand. And so it the makes state sense, being and it makes the embodiment that work. doesn't exactly. And so what we actually have, like we talk a lot, what were the different what was going on in the late 18th century that allowed this? Well, first of all, ever this was the philosophy that the world was on fire with. And that fire has come down to embers now. You stoke back up that fire of basic liberty now that people can see that they might lose it. And that fire can burn again. Right. That fire can burn bright. People are like, well, what are we going to need? What do we need to do? The only thing that needs to be updated or changed or whatever, people are like, well, we need to put Christian principles. No, you just need solid values. You don't actually, if, if those help, great, bring them in. But you, sure. it's not required. You have to have a moral people one way or another, but that means they just need a basis and some values. And what you, the only thing that has to be updated is how do we deal with these questions given that technology has changed the way we interact? How do we deal with these questions in our new financial system, which is super high tech and complicated? How do we deal with these questions of the tech that we have where most of our public squares by social media and it's immediate and blah, blah, blah. These questions haven't been answered. How do we deal with the companies, the corporations that can leverage this much power over us? Like if you think about it, Disney can't leverage that much power over you unless you piss them off and they try to sue you because they're a very litigious company. But Facebook can. And Goldman Sachs can, as it turns out. And if you say, well, not if they can't, not if, you know, uh, you know, if Goldman Sachs says you can't bank with us, like whoever it is is saying, I don't remember, it's not Goldman Sachs, I don't think, but they're kicking Mike Lindell, my pillow guy, out of his banking now. They say, well, you can't, and the, of course the porn stars have all been talking about they're being limited to use credit cards and banking and all of this for a long time. If gun they shops can, have had to face that stuff too. Some gun shops have. have yeah, had, exactly. Uh, you know, if they, you say, oh, well, you'll just go to a different bank. Well, if they're colluding and saying, no, you won't. And if all the social media companies are basically making it so it's like, I know, I don't, I feel like I'm marginally more free or differently free on uh, Twitter than I am on Instagram and Facebook. I don't use Facebook, but I know I'm going to get burned on those platforms for stuff I say on Twitter that Twitter probably won't do anything with. But if they're all basically putting out the same restrictions, you don't actually have an option. And right. then if and somebody like Parler like comes along to try to guy, what's that? Yeah, that's we true. don't know what Twitter is going to be like in the future because of the new guy. Because Jack's gone, and if I yeah. if you follow Jack, Jack is way better not part of Twitter. If yeah, you follow his Twitter that. feed, it's great. Like yeah. I'm like I am like I agree with so much that he says when he's not a part of Twitter. Yeah. So um, you look at Parler though, and it's like, well, make your own. Okay, people did, and then what happened? Like, yeah. <laughs> wow, the collusion's really thick. You know, yeah. that's really dark. That's bad. You know, yeah. the, and then so now you've got other things like Getter and uh, Gab and all these other ones trying, but it's just like they're proving that there's the same trust issues. And I don't mean like I trust you, you trust me. I mean like antitrust laws 
the same trust issues between major corporations that people were facing at the end of the 19th century and early 20th century have come back, not in industry now, but in tech exactly. and in finance. And yeah. until those issues get figured out, which is going to come from actually a groundswell in people, making sure that uh, the people that get put in positions with their hands on the levers of power are actually constitutionalists. I don't care if they're Republican or Democrat. I care if they actually respect the Constitution, period. People, uh, I would love to see a constitutionalist Democrat movement start up and really challenge the base of power on the left. And I think a lot of other people would, too. I mean, you mentioned Kim Iverson. She's always yeah. on left-leaning, et cetera. I think that in Naomi Wolf's another example, somebody who's always been pretty far left, but in the end of the day, like she's like, we're going to lose our freedom. Like this isn't what it's about, you know, because there's so a difference I, between liberals and progressives. I got a big question that's exactly related to this. Um, and I might not like your answer, but I don't care. I want to hear it. Um, what do you think about Tulsi Gabbard? Because I know she's been, Ooh. she's part of the WEF and she does yeah. describe exactly what you're talking about though. Someone who's been on the left, who is speaking out against all this stuff. So I just want to hear what you think about her because people are really split on her because she's been part of the CFR, part of the WEF, mm -hmm. but she says all the right things. Being anti-war uh -huh. and taking it to Hillary Clinton makes me love her a little bit. Makes me love her when she called, when she called Hillary Clinton. Give me the lowdown, though. I want you to destroy oh. my dreams if that's what you're No, saying, I'm, so. I'm probably not. My, uh, I'm, But I'm not going to make you happy either. My sure, view on her, you said that people are torn, and that usually means that different people are estranged from one another in their views over this. I am torn. I do not trust this woman because mm -hmm. of those ties that you mentioned. And so you want to talk about the trust but verify mentality from like the Soviets or whatever. I It's like she's saying all the right stuff, but she has these really weird ties that I do not trust. Yep. And I will not be able to trust her until those are adequately explained, which has not occurred. Mm -hmm. And so I can't go, I can't put chips in on her until those things are explained. Because I know that often one of the, I mean, the Manchurian candidate thing is a thing. Right. The idea that you are going to get this person who says all the right things. And I think we're about to see a unbelievable shitstorm of that this year and probably again in 2024. The candidates who say all the right things on the right issues who are actually going to end up getting in office and either doing things the other way or doing fuck all. That's going to be the primary issue. Like the Democrats have lost so much political capital. I read this morning that now a majority of Americans suspect that the previous election, not a minority, not a fringe, a majority of Americans now suspect the previous election was tampered with a That's majority. One of the things I'm most, most, most concerned with. I'm worried. I'm worried about if people feel like elections aren't legitimate and both uh -huh. sides have been, both sides have been stoking it and, and people love to blame Trump because Trump is, you know, the they're they're the devil in that religion. But uh -huh. both sides have been spoke stoking it. And if people don't believe that elections are fair, that's when they feel like they don't have any means to affect the government. And that's when really bad things happen. Right. So I generally have an extreme distrust of people who have shady ties that they haven't explained who say all the right things. Mm -hmm. And I think that that attitude is the most important, I mean, maybe it's because of my attitude, but the most important attitude to have looking at particularly the primaries, the primaries this year are the most important thing going yeah. on yeah. by far, because they know what I was just explaining is they know that the Democrats have lost a ton of political capital. They probably will 
do lots of election malfeasance, but at the same time, they're because of this enormous distrust, they're going to be somewhat limited in how much of it they're going to be able to pull off without invoking or to, without triggering what they don't really want to have happen. Well, the Republicans are going to be watching like mad. That hope, hopefully, there will be a lot of people watching the polls and stuff. Uh, right. Well, to- I'm I am like R and D mean only a little bit to me at this point. What I'm worried about is that the regime is going to understand this dynamic. They know there's going to be a red wave. And so their objective is going to be to get as many operatives with R's by their name as possible through the primary as the main candidate who then get elected. So we have a huge red wave. People go back to sleep. We have Republicans now and they're going to do exactly what like Jesse Kelly says all the time. They're not going to do a damn thing. And the reason isn't because there's some of them are spineless or weak or they want to keep respectability or whatever, but it's also because there's going to be an ungodly number of them that are their, their allegiance is not to America. It's not even to the Republican party. It is to the regime. And they're going to try to put as many of those people in. Now, is Tulsi, I know she doesn't carry an R by her name, but is she one of those people? I don't know. Why hasn't she explained those relationships? Why, in fact, hasn't she explained how she's cut ties with that? Like if she came out saying lots of other right things, like how horrific the World Economic Forum is and blah, blah, blah. Now we might have something, you know, a little bit more tempting. And that may happen. The pressure on the WEF is mounting. And so I don't know, I may not trust it, but anybody who has these kinds of big NGO ties with like the axis of evil and that isn't explaining them, but is saying all the right things, I'm deeply suspicious of. Now, as for what she's saying, if you take it as a disembodied uh, statement, like, okay, you know, that's great. I'm glad somebody said that. If it was somebody else, it would be retweet, retweet. Oh my God, did you see that? But it's just like with any of the other ones that are, that are these, you know, young global leaders or whatever. It's like, until you adequately explain what that was about and why you understand that you shouldn't like that agenda is bad and you're not part of it anymore. Mm, James, James, that was very kind of you to let, let read down gently like that. That was very kind of you. I appreciate <laughs> well, it. No, I trust. mean, you know, this Phil, it's been a long letdown, like endorsing <laughs> Biden and then like yeah. the nine 11 take about, you know, radical Islam, whatever. But I mean, I, it's just an, She's very interesting to watch because I don't even know what to think anymore. I mean, in 2020, it wasn't a hard choice to support her because everyone else was so awful. But now it's just like watching everybody, what they're doing. I mean, you're, you're totally right. Like the the political opinion has shifted. Like almost nobody was against lockdowns in the beginning, like Rand Paul and a couple other people. And that was really it. And he was mm-hmm. absolutely vilified and demonized. I'm wondering if the Democrats as a whole are going to just like try to switch the narrative this summer over vaccines and everything like, oh, we accomplished it. Like we've we've broken through. Everything's fine. Uh, And now we're embracing freedom and we're moving forward because I don't see how they're going to win anything if they maintain the current trajectory. I think they'll just lose absolutely everything. They will. Um, Their their political capital is literally like in the negative at this point it's really really bad i mean if we're lucky i mean they have legitimate communists in congress like dsa members are communists they they yes i may they may say they're not or they they will actually obfuscate again which they're being duplicitous they are intending to deceive you when they say that they are not marxists um so I'm really hoping for a route to get rid of the actual communists. That's what has to happen. Congress. That Absolutely. has to happen. Has to happen. Yeah. Uh, um, 
Although, like we were saying earlier, the rhinos are almost more dangerous because at least the communists are, I mean, they do lie a little bit, but they're kind of obviously bad. Like when you have people like right. Dan Crenshaw, I mean, I think the scales are falling off of people's eyes about that guy slowly, but man, it took long enough. You know, it's just yeah, like, well, that's, that's the, that's the thing. Um, and that's why I am trying, like, I feel so ineffectual at what I'm trying to, I put this message out a lot. The Republican primaries this year are a almost make or break situation for America. And um, there's if I was if I were a political advisor and I were giving political advice to people who want to save this country from this attempted Marxist coup, uh, what I would tell them is, that, A, you need to have constitutionally minded candidates that are well vetted, that are not fake, and you need to be throwing some serious grassroots weight behind those people, realizing that they're going to be outgunned 10 to 1 in terms of financing, etc. But you need to do it anyway. And then number two, whatever that transition team that they're going to get installed around them, and then their list of whatever political appointees that they're going to make when they get in an office, whether it's a Congress and its staffers, whether it's a governor and they have, you know, very state appointees or whatever, like, you better have some people lined up who have been vetted in advance so that you don't end up with, say, uh, you know, Glenn Youngkin surrounding himself with a team of shit show uh, like K. Cole James, who's got some serious like woke question marks floating around or appointed as part of his transition team. And then all these people kind of freaking out about some of his other appointees and some of his other ones seem to be really good. Trump got surrounded by a swamp as fast as he got elected and they knew right. though that he was on his heels that he was an outsider he didn't have a lot of government connections he was going to have to rely heavily on people so like paul ryan takes over the ppo and makes sure that of the five thousand or so appointees that trump could make that you know he's going to see that at least like three or four thousand of those are going to be swamp swamp creatures Whoever Mitch McConnell and whoever ends up being in charge of the House, whoever they don't like, those are the people that that need to uh, need to to win. Like, so who do you really like right now, James? Like, uh, what do you think of like Marjorie Taylor Greene? People like that. I met her actually. She's pretty cool. Um, I like the way that she's going about things, and I like one of the things that she's doing. It actually accords. I don't know if you guys saw that little book that we published through New Discourses that I didn't write, even though my name's on it, uh, in part with Charles Pincourt called. Uh, counter woke craft. But one of the things that Marjorie, I don't think she's read it, but one of the things that she's done is actually one of the key instructions. Uh, so there's something, and I'm, I apologize that my political savvy is lower than you probably hope, but there's something to do with the way that they vote in Congress. And so they can just kind of do some sort of informal voting, or then they can actually call a you know, floor vote where everybody has to show up, everybody's yeah. thing is going to be recorded, et cetera. And uh, it turns out if Marjorie Taylor Greene figured out that if anybody calls for that, they have to do it. That's all it takes. And so she's called for it on virtually everything and changed the outcome of a lot of voting. So she understands. And then that's Encounter Wokecraft. It says that all of the procedures need to be done as formally as possible. The woke love to live in ambiguity. They love to live in informal processes. They just want to relax all the measures around everything. And so she had the the... You know, whatever some of her beliefs might be on point, some of them might be a bit wacky, some of them might go too far. She might have bought into the QAnon stuff more than she should have. I don't know. I don't like I don't trust anything the media says about people either, right? Because there's trying she comes in doing this weird thing to formalize how they do their voting. 
And then she's like number one boogeyman. So they're going to just smear the shit out of her. I'm at this new rule. Like I don't trust anybody's, especially media based opinions off of anybody till I meet them and talk to them myself. Yep. And I met her and she's cool. She's like a down to earth, normal American person. She may have some beliefs that are incorrect or whatever, but guess what? Welcome to America, asshole. You get to do that. And you <laughs> yeah. get to have your beliefs. That's yep. amendment number uno. You get to have your beliefs. And One she's thing taking that, that... a lot of great steps. I'm really impressed. And the, the amount that they hate her to the point where they've kicked her off Twitter, for example, as a sitting congresswoman, I'm like, she must be doing something they really don't like. She's yes. probably awesome. <laughs> One thing that I want to touch on, and this is a bit of a... a, a a departure. Um, one of the things that you've said a bunch of times, or I've heard you say, uh, James, is there is it's an assault on cognitive liberty, right? Mm -hmm. The ability to think your own thoughts mm -hmm. and to because and that assault on cognitive liberty uh, is intended to, like 1984, prevent you from being able to think bad thoughts. Correct. Mm -hmm. Can you go? Can you go a little bit into depth on that? Because that's one thing that I want that. people to understand. Well, I want people to understand that it that it's not. Again, it, I brought up property rights and and the fact that you own your body because you know obviously a lot of the people watching are going to be libertarians and that's the sure. language libertarians speak, especially the the Mises Caucus kind of libertarians that tend to watch um, Reed's Reed's show. Um, and so the the cognitive liberty is something else that that I think that that people need to hear about. So if you would please yeah. go and, and explain. So the first thing to say about that is you can retain your liberty, your free speech, uh, 100% if you have absolutely no capacity to freely think. You can say whatever you want if you only ever say the right things that you've been locked into having to say. Now, there are a variety of ways that we have to talk about the threats to cognitive liberty. One is the kind of trichotomy of bullying that you see from this kind of Marxist ideology or even fascism would use it. The constant attempt to undercut your ability to be confident in yourself or to be rendered credible by other people. So they try to undercut epistemic authority. They make you feel like or look like you don't know what you're talking about. They undercut moral authority. So you are a bad person and the reason you have bad motivations for saying what you're doing and they're saying what you're saying. And that's either because... Um, you know, you believe that about yourself or other people perceive it even when you don't. And the third is to undercut psychological authority. Only a crazy person would say that stuff. It's a conspiracy. And these are all things that happen when you get canceled. These are all tactics that are used to Correct. cancel someone. And so these delimit what people, they, they delimit kind of your interior Overton window. What's acceptable to think at all? Well, you know, if you condition yourself to say, well, if I think about, you know, Mike Lindell's data about, the D word that if you say it on the air, that kind of rhymes with onion, uh, <laughs> onion, or whatever, uh, you can't say that on, because they'll sue the shit out of you. If it's like, that's why you can't have it on TV. I didn't even know that when I'm on Rogan, I got filled in since I talked about it on Rogan and people are like, Oh my God, this is what it is. How do you not know this? I'm like, I don't know. I only can keep so much shit in my head, but it's <laughs> like, if you go on Fox news and you talk about, dominion it, they will sue the fuck out of you and so they're they're so then you have in your head like that's out of the range of acceptable discourse so with the by trying to make you look like you don't know what you're talking about unless you talk on their terms by making you look like you're a bad person unless you talk on their terms or you're crazy if you don't talk on their terms they're delimiting how the range of what you'll find as is acceptable thought and thus acceptable speech now that's and it also way, makes you more neurotic too correct that's low tech though 
the the limits to cognitive liberty get much worse than this. So the second layer, which is far worse, is through algorithmic conditioning. So you know that your Twitter has an algorithm. You are not seeing Twitter tweets in the order that everybody you follow is tweeting them, say, chronologically in an unfiltered morass. They have been tailored to you by how you've interacted with people in the past. And so if you ever like kind of become friends with somebody on Twitter and you respond a lot and you like a lot of other stuff, maybe you start talking to them in the DM or whatever, you'll notice they're at the top all the freaking time. And then sometimes if you stop kind of liking each other's stuff mutually, one or the other of you kind of like something went wrong or you dip out, they disappear from your thing. Your, your feed is being conditioned by your behavior, but it can also be conditioned by what, um, you know, what Twitter wants you to see or what Twitter's advertisers want you to see. And that's actually, this is huge. This is what Stephen uh, Hicks calls, the philosopher Stephen Hicks calls algorocracy. So it's government by algorithm. So the algorithm, how does it work? It conditions the limits of what you're able to think by feeding you information according to what the algorithm wants you to think. So the algorithm learns a bunch of data about you, how you interact with information, how you, using like machine learning processes, learns a lot about who you are, how you'll behave in response to certain things. And then not only does it tailor the information that you've signed up, like the people you follow, so that it comes in a certain order, but it starts to work in suggested for you. Little snippets of news or whatever that are going to condition how you think about issues. And this is very subtle, very powerful. This is, by the way, one of the things that they actually want to achieve. This is your data is so valuable. You become the product with so much of this stuff with the, you know, the thing where they track your steps. And then you have these watches you wear and they track your heartbeat. They tell you how much you're sleeping. Somebody said, I'm shitty. I shit you not. A friend of mine sent me this thing at the end of the year and it said, you know, the question was, you know, why do you it's wearing whatever the whoop app? right with the watch and the phone and, all. and it's like it tracks your sleep quality of your sleep your heart rate your temperature all different crap all this data and so what it's tracking it said the number top three reasons in 2021 you lost sleep and it lists them right and her number two reason was masturbating and this was supposed to be hilarious and i'm like that means your fucking watch knows you're jerking off that's not good <laughs> right but what is this data why what kind of data do they want everybody's like it's called the little old me objection well i don't care if they're spying on me because what are they going to do with little old me and i don't really do anything that wrong you know maybe i google right. porn every now and then but it's not like a big deal you know it's not that what they want to know is they want to know what your heart rate did for the hour before you decided to make a multi-thousand dollar purchase and they want to then use that data to condition through algorithms what they feed you. Oh, his heart rate's doing the thing where he's going to be more willing to buy some crap, hit him with a very targeted ad, and now he's going to part with $5,000 he didn't expect to part with today. That's what's really valuable to them. Everyday normal data. that they, And so that will be conditioned through algorocracy. That's level two of losing cognitive liberty. You think you're making your own decisions, but you're being conditioned to make decisions that they want you to make. That type level of three, complexity is level two. That's level two. Yeah. Level three is fucking Neuralink. They put a thing in your brain that connects to the internet, and your thoughts are mishmashed with thoughts that are in the web. 
So this is the part where James smashes my hopes and dreams. He already got you with uh, Tulsi. I'm an Elon fan, and this is where James is going to well, to absolve me of my Elon totally. fanhood. No, Elon's mostly okay, actually. Let me just be clear. Neuralink is this is I'll get to the to, to Neuralink in a second. Let me just tell you how it's obvious how this steals cognitive liberty, right? So you don't sure, know sure. which thoughts are yeah. your own and which ones are being stuck into okay. you by the internet or some nefarious actor in the internet at that point. Okay. So that's easy. That's level three, though. Freaking literal sure. device in your brain where that which becomes a thought through the processes of neurons is intermeshed with that which becomes a thought through electronic stimulation through a device that's implanted. Okay, now that's obvious. That's that's the long run plan for removing all cognitive liberty. And then you're going to do whatever the damn machine tells you if it's hijacked by a machine that wants to tell you what to do. And how you're going to safeguard that after what Snowden showed us, I have no idea. Like, what? Con well, you're going to put some stuff in the freaking Constitution? They can't do that. Like, you aren't even going to know they're doing it if they wanted to make it that way. And then when you get to, like, really good AI, like, dude, both level two and level three, the algorithm is going to be so sharp. But I almost tweeted something last night. They're, they're, like, there is a real, clear, and present danger to humanity and the existence of human liberty at all That's presently right. and we are we are we are looking at it develop right now and and the choices and decisions that we make will decide whether or not there is a future with actual individuals That's right. that are not a collective brain because Listen. the singularity is coming that's the goal. Collective yeah. brain. Everybody's yeah. brain meshed into like the internet the seamlessly like a Borg. And so what is Klaus? And I will save Elon for you. Hold on. What does Klaus Schwab always say? The fourth industrial revolution is about changing what it means to be human. Yeah. Like freak the fuck out right now. Like that's the goal. Changing what it means to be human at a fundamental level. And it's all about this weird like transhumanist technocracy bullshit where you're going to be like plugged into a matrix that you don't even realize you're fully plugged into with a digital gulag on the way station. If the communists take over, we can talk about digital gulags and should too. I wished I did on Rogan and forgot. Let me save Elon for you. Okay. Elon's tapped in. You don't get to be somebody like Elon Musk and not be tapped in. Sure. He's rich as shit. He's doing all this crap. Elon has a pattern of figuring out whatever their plan is. Electric cars. Oh, I'm going to do it first outside of their control. Oh, brain implants. I'm going to do it first outside of their control. So there's good reasons to believe that I named Neuralink because it's a thing people have heard of. So but Neuralink being Elon's yeah. project is possibly intended, although it could be hijacked, kind of like Starlink is like supposed sure. to get around their 5G bullshit. Um, isn't it funny how he's like coming up with all this stuff that's supposed to like when he, he, when he, someone asked him a question about Starlink and he's like, what, and it, essentially the, I'll, I'm going to paraphrase because I don't remember the quote exactly, but it was essentially like, what are authoritarian governments going to do about, about you pumping the internet directly into a free and open internet directly into people's, into people's phones. And he said, shake their fists at the sky. And it was like, I love that. Exactly. I love that. Shake exactly. their fists at the sky. Exactly. To hell so, with your authoritarianism. We're going to go around you. I loved it. So the whole idea of a brain implant, as many cool benefits as it might bring about, freaks me out so freaking bad that I'm like, like even like Elon, no, Elon, no, Elon, no. But 
I don't I don't get the impression that Elon's motives are in fact are, are nefarious. In fact, I feel like he's trying to hijack the technology before they can get around to it. So I've saved I Elon. Like yeah, I didn't let you down. If, if like you want to see, so you might as well. So he's got to get there before the before because if if AI is possible, I've heard people talk about it. If AI general AI is possible, whoever gets there first wins. Everything wins everything. Everything like wins wins the future. So maybe it's. Who well yeah I mean who but it's so one it's good really EMP screws that up. I mean but yeah but we're really literally like are we actually going to be living in like the, is the Matrix like going to be the real thing that we're going to be. be living in? That's are we, we don't want black that. in the skies because the computers are really using solar power like that's so stupid because they would have figured out how, how to harness all that lightning. I watched that part of the movie and I was like, <laughs> even at the time like I was like twenty I'm like fuck like, that come on, I come on look at all the lightning bolts movie. use those. Like, yeah. come on, there is, but, a lot or drill down into the magma. You're freaking super smart computers. You, this is bullshit. Human beings don't put off enough heat. There's lava. Like yeah. get down there. Like, it, come on. So James, like, I, I got a kind of a closing question for you. Um, well, should we do the digital gulag first? Cause I don't sure, yeah, sure, it's ahead, important because yeah. people need to understand digital gulags. Yes. Cause yeah. people don't understand gulags because people are really well educated in this country on Nazis. So they know all about concentration camps. They know about labor and death camps. What they don't know a lot about is gulags because we have redwashed education that doesn't tell anybody the truth about communism. So a lot of people think, oh, gulag, that's Russian for concentration camp. That's what Hitler had. No, it's not. Gulags were re-education camps. Gulags put people into labor because they were supposed to teach people that labor was, you know, the pathway for the, the revolution to make them into proletarians who make according to Marxist theology. I want to point out just tangentially that where you see Arbeit macht frei, which is, by the way, you could say that is the religious credo of communism. Work makes free. You see that put above the gates of, of Dachau and uh, Auschwitz. Right. The Nazis were mocking the Jews who they believe were all communists. Oh, you believe that work makes you free? We're going to free you from your bodies by making you work. Mm -hmm. That's the sadistic view. So the Nazis didn't believe Arbeit mocked Fry. They were mocking the Jews, who they all believe were communists. But that is a communist religion point. Work, or as they say today, the work makes you free. You set yourself free as humanity by becoming social man, by reaching that high level. So the gulag is meant to be a re-education camp. So they sent people off and they forced them to do labor. And if they were, if they could be made into proletarians, then they actually got to leave the gulag and go be stuck in some factory or some farm or some bullshit that the communists worked them, you know, basically to death anyway. And, but the gulag wasn't necessarily, a, it's not a concentration camp. It's a re-education camp. People who were not re-educatable got shot into mass graves or whatever else or stuck into hospitals where they did grotesque experiments, all kinds of crazy shit. Not good. But. What we're not, we're some people are going to get carted off to prison if they win, but most people won't because they're going to have what I would say the right phrasing. It's not my phrase, is digital gulags, which is digital re education. I've seen stuff like this. I've been to China a number of times. I've seen stuff like this in China with their social credit system. So look at what's actually going because to really make this case, I want to, I want to make this not science fiction. I want to tie this to shit that's really gone on in the world. So you can see over my shoulder, uh, this shoulder. There we go. I can't twist Australia mm -hmm. on my map. I knew I could get there. 
It's a mirror image, though. Yeah. You got Australia. We see stuff that's been going on in Australia for a while with their lockdown. And this was in other countries, too, but it was very famous in Australia. You couldn't go more than however far away from your home, five kilometers or whatever, without clear justification for why you were doing it. And they would pull you over and check. And people actually got arrested and fined for being too far away from their houses. If you were out at all, I know Australians who were checking their mail and police would ask them why they were outside. They can, so they can set, they could delimit. This is real. They already did this somewhere with lower technology that without, I mean, remember your device has a GPS in it and you say, well, I just won't have mine. Yeah, right. Every hour you aren't responding to their little prompts, your social credit goes down and it gets worse for you until they eventually show you, show up and lock you up or fine you into uh, complete poverty. But you can go five kilometers from your house because you're at this score. You can go however far away you want because you're at that score. You can go no more than 100 meters from your house because your score is really low. That's not good. They can isolate you from other people. Social distancing. Social distancing has been a thing. Well, my GPS detects your GPS. We're within however many meters or feet or whatever. It'll probably be meters because in communism, we all use social, the metric system. Um, so, well, that was a joke. Uh, the metric system is actually pretty good. But we, as a, as a former physicist, um, you know, we're too close together. So my bad social credit score is rubbing off on you. In China, they oh, literally, oh, they God. literally now have that alerts that pop up if you get physically room. too close to people with too much debt. So you know uh, there's a debtor near you, and maybe it identifies who they are, so you can bully them or whatever. Social distancing. And now imagine the 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 racism that comes with that, and all of oh, just know. all the ugly, <laughs> just gross. The, and setting the, the families of society and and the accusations yeah. and all of think of think of vaccine, uh, the way people behaved about vaccines, but on ten. Yeah. And, constantly. and so to God that point in China, you actually can gain social credit by engaging in community activity that helps other people raise their social credit. So imagine I'm married. I am. And I'm married to somebody who has a far higher social credit score than I do. So I have like a I don't know what the numbers would be, but let's imagine like kind of like real social credit scores or like real actual financial credit scores. Like my wife's got like a 750. I've got like a like a 400 or something. Right. So her social credit or her social credit you goes would down. never a 400 would never marry a 750. I already know this. It's it's me. It's, we're imagining it. But go ahead. It's just a thing. Imagine. Well, you know, she hasn't done anything to offend the social justice gods except be married to me. And I clearly have. So imagine that that's the dichotomy there. Yeah. This is a huge split in our it doesn't even have to be big. Well, her social credit goes down and thus she gets limitations put on her life big time just for being in the proximity of me sharing the same house. Unless, unless she's bullying me into the right views, that's going to put some stress on the old relationship. But of course, they don't want families anyway. So uh, you can see how these kind of things are going to play out. So the digital gulag is going to be a situation you won't be able to buy things, except maybe you'll go to the grocery yeah. store. You can only go on one day a week in a certain range of a small number of hours. You can only buy certain products. Oh, you like meat? You can't buy meat because your social credit score is too damn low. Mm, you like Cheez-Its? You can't buy Cheez-Its because those are a treat and you can only have those if your social credit score is above a certain deal or whatever. They can control and make your life a living hell. And how can you get out of it? Well, you go on social media and talk about how great the government is. You go on social media and talk about, I know that's a libertarian, like, ah, and you go on and talk about how great critical race theory is. You go on and do this, you, you know, you bully somebody into be adopting these views. 
or you watch a propaganda video. That's a thing in China. Like you can't buy anything right now. Go watch some videos of Xi Jinping talking about some bullshit. And your social credit score goes up and now you can get a train ticket to go home. And they can make you know your life if you're home. watching too, because they're going to see if your eyes are on the screen. You can't just That's turn correct. it on and walk away. That's correct. And more, not only that. Yeah, they will. They, they do it be able with boobies see. now. Yep. And then, <laughs> then even worse, they've already introduced. They talked about it at where? The World Economic Forum. This cool pill you can take that contains a little transmitting nanobot or whatever the hell it is God. that can tell the, the transmits. They give you a pill to take. Who the fuck knows what's in that pill? Maybe it's opium. Maybe it's something that is psychotic. Maybe it's LSD. Maybe who knows what's in that pill. But they tell you you have to take this pill. And it has a little transmitting robot in it. And it knows if you took it. You can't flush it down the toilet. You, it knows if you took it. So they can force you to take any pharmaceutical they want. They can make your life an absolute hell until you play ball with them. And that's the digital gulag. That's People are like, I'll see you in the gulag. No, you won't, asshole. The right. gulag is going to be in your house, yeah. trapped, alone, completely estranged from everything but propaganda until you play ball. You and will the only not make friends. People that are coming to knock on your door are people that you don't want there. Yeah. That's exactly correct. Yeah, you're right. Like everyone still has a 20th century view of how everything will transpire, yeah. but it's not going to yeah. be that way. It's going to be social and credit enforcement that makes you comply or be. That's what's so similar to uh, Brave New World, you know. It's yeah. Like, well, let me. If go ahead. Well, no, go ahead and finish your thought about Brave New World. I'll tell you about when I went to China last time. Yeah. Well, Brave New World. In the end, the guy. Just, I forget the name. It's been twelve years since I read the book, but the the main character decides he wants to be like the savage, and everyone is like, "Fine, like be irrelevant. You have to go move away. Like you can't be part of society unless you conform to everything they want to do. You have to like go yeah. live in the jungle." Yeah, yeah, exactly. I mean, it, the, the it, jungle it really it contains yeah. a major. <laughs> That's where I'm going, that. baby. <laughs> I think what we'll see. I got is a room like, for you. Yeah, it'll All be right. very Brave New World at the ground level and very 1984 at the geo. They say geopolitical world or level. Um, but so last time I went to China, and this is where I was like, "Oh shit, That's this so can get weird." And I didn't have any bad experiences. I don't want to give you that impression. What year was this, by the way? This was in 2019. Okay. In early 2019, so before Koof. And so I went to China. James brought it back. Yeah. I might have, actually. I got some fucking awful coronavirus while I was in China in March of 2019. That's just from breathing the air there. And the symptoms were weirdly similar to the OG Koof. And mm. like allegedly it didn't exist yet. If it was leaked from a lab in either November or August or whatever that year, it was not there. But it's like I've had literally I've had doctors tell me it's like it sounds like you had the closest wild precursor to whatever COVID is that there was. Mm. And it's like I was sick for like two and a half weeks, coughing up blood. Were you I might have bats. Is that what it was? You were eating. Bats I did eat zero yeah. bats. <laughs> I did get straight on a seven seventy seven with that though. So like here we yeah. go. Um, <laughs> Anyway, zero. Oh my God. I was coughing. Like it was so bad. Uh, Bastard Lindsay. (laughs) But no, I've been to China every year since uh, up from 2014 to 2019. Okay. So I haven't been back since the COVID. I probably can't go back now because I've like criticized them and they're not happy about that shit. And so I tell you what, I went went back. That would be ballsy as hell. (laughs) Oh, I know. I'd end up standing around. You'd be able to go back, but you wouldn't be coming back from there. (laughs) Well, Actually, they're, you'll notice that it's not that bad. What actually happens is they just fuck with you and make your life miserable when you try to leave and when while you're there, the, the, this digital gulag stuff. But the yeah. 2014 through 18, 
nothing weird that freaked me out. It's just China. It's authoritarian. It is what it is. Nothing freaked me out, really. Right. They hassle you. There's some racism, blah, blah, blah. 2019, I go over there. I get off the plane. I've been there a bunch of times now. Don't think anything of it. Walk through, walk down the hallway at the airport. And then before you get to the immigration area, there's these machines. And they did not swab my butthole. They're the machines. They scanned my retinas. They took pictures of my irises. They took mm. my fingerprints on every finger. They took my handprint oh, on both fuck. hands. They took high-resolution photograph of me, and they printed out. If I had my passport in the room, I'd show you. It's all faded now. They gave me a little piece of paper that's all in Chinese and says, OK, in big letters in the middle of it. And you have to have that to go through immigration. And so then you go through immigration, and there's the camera, and they're looking at your passport, and they look at your thing. So then I have all this data on me. And then I come through and, you know, I get through no problem. I get into the country. So then we go to, you know, different places in China and it's like they have to scan your passport for you to be allowed to do whatever it is. There that picture pops up like on the screen, like they know who I am everywhere. They're tracking me. You can't check into a hotel without giving your giving them your passport. Like you don't stand there and they do something. No, you give them your passport and some half hour, hour later, they bring it back to you. And it's like, uh, okay, you can't change money. You can't do anything. But then that's like already enough. Like they've got all this weird data they took of me. But then what really freaked me out, and this had very little to do with me. We're like not at Starbucks. We're just at like this tea shop or whatever, right? Starbucks didn't have this problem, but it was an increasing trajectory, 17, 18, 19. It wasn't really before that of places like the list of places we could not go because they don't take cash was increasing. And uh, we did this tea shop and we actually had to give our cash to the this one guy who had the app who could pay for it. And so he had, he goes in there and he's buying like, there's a big group of us. So he's buying like 26 cups of tea and like all these sandwiches. It's like this crazy order. And it's because he has to pay by scanning his QR code on his phone and we can't pay. We literally couldn't pay there. And that's when you realize that if I had a black mark on that QR code, if my vaccine passport turned red that day, I wouldn't be able to buy th buy something here. And that's when it started to tumble into place. Like, there's no other way to pay. There's no other way to engage with this function in society. Whereas in the United States, I think if you offer legal tender, they have to accept it. Yep. Which I was just, by the way, at the airport in Houston on my way back from Austin... And I went to the Starbucks to get a cup of coffee. And the chick was like, by the way, we're not taking cash today. And I was sitting there thinking, that's illegal. But it's like, am I going to uh, am I, am I going to argue with yeah. this person? Like, right, I, have, I was going to pay with a credit card anyway. What the fuck do I care? But like, that's actually illegal. Like, mm -hmm. if you offer legal tender, because it used to be the big joke, I'm going to pay in pennies. I offered legal tender. You have to take it. Um, which is a thing, right? It's a troll mm -hmm. move. But it's like, all of, there was the first like time in America where I felt that lurch toward what that's China shit. Mm. We don't take cash here. That's the only place I've experienced that in my entire life is China. And then I know that the goal is to make us more like China. So I got freaked out even by that low level. stuff. But at that point, it was literally about a third of places. We can't go there. We can't go there either. Yeah, I know you like to go there, but you can't pay. You that's exactly cash, what... you can't use a credit card you have to pay by an app that's hooked straight to the bank of china or whatever 
Yeah, that's exactly what Kim Iverson said last night, is that the goal is to make the United States more like China. I mean, it's kind of hard to refute when you look at the trajectory. It's even scarier when you realize that Kissinger's point in making China what it is today by opening their markets was to create the enemy that we would have to become more like. So we could justify becoming more like China by making China that way first. Mm -hmm. So oh, Lindsay, you're, you're on a libertarian, <laughs> libertarian po podcast trashing Kissinger in a new and creative way. And I thought that libertarians had exhausted all of the means <laughs> to trash Henry Kissinger. Thank Who's you. metal James now, Lindsay. Phil. <laughs> so James, James Lindsay, purely. James, the last thing I wanted to ask you is how do we balance education these days? Because, <clears throat> I mean, obviously even though like you were pointing out some of the stuff that Hitler said that was correct or whatever, you wouldn't want Mein Kampf. <laughs> that sounds so bad. In, yeah, I know it does. It really does. But you wouldn't want Mein Kampf taught in schools. You wouldn't no. want uh, Marxism taught in schools. No. So how do you balance education with knowledge of the enemy? Like, I mean, cause I, I know so many people who can't draw that line. They're just like, I believe in freedom. And I think that means we should teach, kids everything and let them choose like what, what would praxis. you say that? no so no it's just about it's it, it's literally i mean i hate to invoke harry potter here but like the restricted sectional section in the library it's literally about age appropriate education right mm -hmm. so i actually think that we teach our kids in this country a lot about nazis and yeah. i think that that's been great we don't teach our kids a lot about communism I think right. that in the similar age-appropriate ways, we should be teaching them about the absolute failures of communism. And they get to maybe middle school or early in high school, and then you can go into like the you know Misian argument about why it's always going to fail economically speaking. You could actually you know by the time they're getting up to upper levels of of high school or even in college, could be focusing on uh, the philosophical reasons why it's a crackpot religion that's always going to fail. Like it inverts the subject object relationship. So it's always going to collapse on itself. And so there are these kinds of arguments, but at the, you know, what are you gonna do in like third grade? Well, you're going to talk about, you know, these people were tyrants and they killed a lot of people to try to force their thing on the world. And as they forced it, it failed. And let's talk about what happened at Chernobyl. Why did Chernobyl melt down? Well, it's because everybody lived in a culture of fear that they were the one that screwed up because they lived in a tyrannical government. So nobody would confess that something was going wrong because that might make the government look bad. So the next thing you know, on down the track, we end up with this giant meltdown. So those kind, there are age appropriate lessons. I think we actually need very robust education that mirrors what we've very successfully done with Nazi, anti-Nazi education, anti-fascist education. We need very robust education that's anti-communist. That's again, age appropriate. Uh, I used to think that, that this was a um, indictment. It probably comes out of critical theory or whatever, but I think this is a really interesting thing to look at. Uh, it's an old saying that education is a diminishing set of lies, but it's actually like peeling an onion because of age appropriateness. So we should be, I think from like very early on, we should be doing robust, like these are what the knots, wherever it becomes age appropriate, second grade or whatever. Uh, I don't know what age. That's not my, I don't, I could become expert enough to make those determinations, but I'm not currently. Um, right. But, you know, these are what the Nazis were. This is what Holocaust was. Like, we cover it. This is what the Holodomor was. This is what Stalin did. This is what Mao did. This is how That's Mao just a great parallel right people. there. Like, compare how many people know what the Holocaust was to how many people know what the Holodomor was. I mean, <laughs> and at any one point, hundred. Like, you probably learned a whole bunch in your schooling about Nazis, but you were never required to read Mein Kampf. 
Right. And so it isn't necessary to force these kids to read, which I think is actually age inappropriate. I think like Marxist book should be in kind of a restricted section of the library <laughs> where you have a good like because it, it, they're very tricky. If you don't understand what you're reading, it's very tricky and seductive. And when yeah. you do understand what you're reading, it's it's very important to understand. Like, again, with a stupid Harry Potter, you don't want kids getting sucked into the dark arts. But when they get to the level where they're studying it, you want them to be able to look at it and learn it for the purposes of, of understanding how understanding, it works to, yeah. to repel it and keep it away. And so, again, that's, again, age appropriateness, and it may even be contextual. Like, if you're kind of homeschooling your kid, that's a very libertarian thing, you can make those kinds of determinations about when it is and it is not appropriate to bring that lesson to your child. If it happens to be in a schooling situation, whether private or government-run public, it still, you know, ideally there is no public education that's not with the cons that, that doesn't go with the consent doesn't go without the consent of the governed and thus the educated so the parents should have some say and say you know just like i don't think necessarily this kind of sex education is appropriate for say sixth graders i don't think you should be having them read herbert marcuse i don't think it's you should entirely be entirely legitimate to be against public education and at the same time try to influence <laughs> public ed education considering you are forced to put your children into some type of public education if right. you are putting right. your kids into school go beyond the school board if you want to like there's a lot of libertarians that are that are really like especially principled libertarians that say things like you know i don't i, I don't endorse the system so i don't vote or you know and you get more of that when you get into the anarchist uh yeah uh community and stuff but like and i get it I, I understand your aversion to it, but that doesn't mean like you just because you don't want to participate doesn't mean that it isn't going to participate all the fuck over you. That's so right. That's exactly right. Need, and I don't think we're going to. No. Yeah. And so, you know, it's how do you get that civic engagement to where the public school extends with the consent of the governed? We are sure. the people being governed by the school and it being impacted by the school. So we, the people have a damn say about what's going on in that school. And I do think, like I said, that there's age appropriate ways to do it and it, simultaneously to the point that we keep circling back to uncomfortably about what Hitler was right about. You have to have something positive to fill in the gap. You can't do a purely critical and negative approach. And so I think that it's absolutely appropriate, especially if it's a government school in the United States, that you're teaching proper foundational American civics. Mm hmm. I think that's very important. Like we, this conversation we had about Locke and Jefferson, what, why do we, I didn't learn in my school at all. I learned about life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness, but I never learned why. And that yep. pursuit of happiness is considered an enigmatic phrase. It's not at all. If you understand it, the relationship that Jefferson had to his readings of Locke, Absolutely. why wasn't that like, I could have learned that in like third grade. Why do and you, it's not a hard lesson. Why do you have life, liberty, and uh, property? What no, did Locke think about property is that's your ability to pursue happiness in your life. And so, bup, 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 bup. this is this this should be what Trump called awkwardly and kind of I mean, I don't it's the problem is, is that the word has been tainted and it shouldn't be tainted. But what he called a patriotic education. I think it's actually in every nation's best interest to be teaching a patriotic education. But we also need to realize that the time like there there is a danger in in too much nationalism so oh, yeah, you have to absolutely. kind of like thread that balance like it's not rah-rah everything the united states has ever done is good but you should be like rooting down in those basic principles 
And I think that should be there. So civics education, so, robust anti-communist education, continue to do robust anti-fascist, anti-Nazi education. Uh, and to actually, other than that, that's like all ideological. Other than that, to drill down and focus on actual competencies that reflect the things that people are going to do in their life. And probably, honestly, people are not going to like to hear this. You talk about school choice, et cetera. But I actually think we probably need to, wherever possible, to make smaller schools that serve fewer students. Uh, and one of the reasons that we have such gigantic school systems, and it's certainly been the case in the school system I graduated from, which was near the top of the state and even the top of the Southeast when I graduated from it and is now nowhere near that, is that they keep schools bigger and bigger and bigger so they have bigger and bigger football teams or more. It's really about the sports. And so I'm kind of of the inclination. It's like, you know what? No, screw that. I like Start, the NFL and all, but like the sports, all you have to do is to, to break that problem and start looking at smaller schools outside of large urban areas, which gets complicated. I get it. But all you have to do is decouple sporting from schools and make the sporting something tangential to the school, not integrated into the school. And you can have, as it used to be, crosstown rivals or whatever. And it could be done. It can be organized some other way, either publicly or privately. Um or some both, or it could be a real public-private partnership or something that's not fucking nefarious NGOs. So there are a lot of things that could be done, but I think ultimately teaching actual serviceable skills is going to be a key. Are you academically preparing students to engage in the world that they're going to enter? B, what does the ideological grounding look like? Well, we know certain things are big damn failures like Nazism, fascism, communism, of all stripes, Maoism included. And mm -hmm. so let's have a robust anti-education on those. And we know certain things are actually really great for human flourishing. Like what? Life, liberty, property, pursuit of happiness. Let's teach some of that as, as the pro-ideological component. How does America actually work? What does the Constitution say? Like, I didn't, I was never, growing up in the South, was never required to read the Constitution itself in my schooling. In a mm -hmm. government class, my high school government class, which is what replaced civics in America, was taught by a fucking Canadian <laughs> who was the, brought the, the in point. as a football coach God. because he played in the CFL. That that leads right into your point about the sports teams. <laughs> I know. Like yeah. the, the stuff's all like, why was my I have no civics class. My civics class gets, this was back in the 90s even, gets replaced with a government class. And my American yeah. government class is taught by a Canadian football coach. I Why? took civics when I was in Catholic school in the 80s. But then when I went to, and that was in grade school. We had like basic civics in, in grade school teaching, you know, the very basics. But then by the time I, I went to middle school, seventh grade, uh, in public school, not Catholic school, um, that, that stuff was out the window. There was no civics. There was nothing at all. And all of my, I, I, I have a better understanding of the constitution and the way that our government works than the average person on the street. And I know that's not saying much, especially if you watch like, you know, the tonight show go water's world on the street. when he's asking stuff. Yeah. Yeah. You know, it's like, it's not, it's not like, Oh, look at me. I know how I know how that there's three branches. Look at, I deserve a party. But like, mm. um, but that being said, like that should be something that we should be embarrassed of as a nation and also we should be afraid of because that means that people don't know how our government works and our our governmental governmental system works well when it works as intended yes 
you know. So imagine like the president decides he's going to have this gigantic usurpation of power that he's not justified constitutionally to do, but only 5% of the population understands that that's yeah. something you can't do. Then you're not going to get the kind of like, hey, wait a minute, what the hell are you doing? Outcry. Where if you say, get exactly the opposite, you get why? What do you mean he can't do that? He's the president. He should the be president. able to do that. Yeah, yeah. President equals king. Morons. Yeah, exactly. So, I mean, I'm totally behind that skills based education basic like can you read like really like right now <laughs> less than a third of our students can read um yeah, or some terrible statistic like that do you have i don't i actually have you'd think as a mathematician that'd be like everybody needs to take calculus bullshit i don't even think most people need to take algebra i think that there should be some critical thinking because that's kind of the point of what it does i think we should have some basic numeracy we should have some basic skills with mathematical literacy statistical literacy and uh, then critical thinking skills being taught, like specifically through like maybe mathematical or formal logic or whatever, which kids will really hate, but it sharpens you up. But unless you're going in the math, science, engineering, STEM tracks, like you honestly, you don't need algebra. Like it's maybe first algebra is fine to break people in and figure out who's going where. But after that, it's like. Yeah, I needed it on my high medium voltage test and that was it. I haven't used it at all in my adult life <laughs> since high school. Yeah, I mean, but, this is yeah. a thing. And so um, I think that, you know, basic literacy, numeracy, scientific literacy, statistical literacy skills based. And then on the ideological front, robust anti-communist, robust anti-fascist, robust anti-Nazi. Uh, like who's a, how many high school kids have even heard of Pol Pot? Like it's like they should right. know what's going on, and then it should be clear. Like I, if I if I was civics. if I was like you know saying hey I can do this, it should be clear that these are that the course that you're taking is explaining why Nazism, communism, authoritarianism, these things are bad, and it shouldn't be ambiguous. It shouldn't be like oh well you know communism had some bad results but they meant good and they were looking for good things right. and eventually we're trying to get there anyways because that's essentially what's what's going on now it's like oh well right. you know they had good ideas and that's where we're going anyways so you know it, it had some flaws but you know capitalism's bad too and look if we we spin things around we can lie to you and say that capitalism causes you know the lack of clean water for some, some people or capital capitalism causes these things and say the capitalism kills millions of people that it right, doesn't right. kill, but, exactly. but it's all deception. You know, it's, it, so it's, it should deception. be clear that these things are bad and they are counter to our way of life and the fundamental principles that our government is, is built on. And if you pull away the fundamental things that our government is built on, you are going to end up with bad results and you're going to end up with, like you said before, throwing the whole of the society into a blender. Now, on another practical level, we need to get rid of teachers' unions. Public Absolutely. sector unions are already a disaster, but the teachers' unions have been super whack-job communists for a long time. I'm not even generally always opposed to, to unionization. I get it. It's like an incorporation of the workers versus the incorporation of the... I get the attempt to balance power. They tend to get sure. corrupt, but just in broad principle. But public sector unions, like, what the hell? And then teachers' unions are just a disaster. They don't represent... They don't represent the goal of schools, which is to educate kids, which parents and the students themselves become the primary stakeholders. If we're going to use their fancy language of the day, they represent the teachers as primary yeah. stakeholders if they're doing what they're nominally said to be doing. But they actually just become literally like a cartel that's that's which unions tend to become 
by the way. Yeah, but my dad they is just a... become a cartel that's screwing up everything with no regard to the parents. In fact, they hate the parents. No regard for the students. The students are this distraction that keeps them from doing their primary mission. So the teachers unions absolutely just need to be abolished, just straight up yeah. gone. Yep. Yeah, my dad is a small town public school teacher, and he could not agree with you more. He's never joined the NEA, hasn't even joined the local teachers union, wants to abolish the Department of Education. Uh, he's going to love this episode. So, I mean, literally yeah. the only reason to join the teachers union as a regular, not in insane communist teacher is to pay your dues. And then so that you can step in there and demand that they have to listen to you and then yeah. be the biggest thorn in their side, the biggest grain of sand in their gears. And the second that they don't let you do it anymore, quit and take your money back out of it. But that's the only reason to join is to be a pain in their ass. That's yeah. And that's not a great reason, but I'm just saying, if you need a reason to join, yeah. that's the only reason to join is to be a pain in their ass until they yeah. don't exist anymore. Get them. Well, this was an amazing talk. Uh, I don't know if this will be the final one on YouTube. We'll see if this uh, stays it up. But be. everybody... Go subscribe to me on Odyssey. There's a link in the description because even if this doesn't get me taken off of YouTube, I'm probably not long for the living. Um, yeah, thank Wait, we didn't say ivermectin. Oh, there we go. Now Whoops. it's gone. <laughs> but hey, we didn't say ivermectin. <laughs> we didn't say it. Yeah. Nay. Phil, uh, thank you for setting us up. This was, uh, quite this was well. amazing. Uh, I'll let you guys both plug anything you got coming up or where people can follow you. I've got both your Twitter links in the description, but Phil, what else is going on and where can people keep up with you? All right. So I'm about to go on tour in March. We are doing a celebration of a record called The Fall of Ideals. It came out 15 years ago and it is very pertinent to today as a lot of stuff that I've said in the past 15 years is I wrote a, I wrote a, uh, this is a bit of a distraction, but I want to tell Jim this, Jim, I wrote a, an op-ed in AP in 2012, I think it was. And I called Tom Morella commie and a fool because he <laughs> is a commie and I'm going to send you the link. Cause I want you to laugh about it. That's Anyways. Epic. Um, yeah, there's a new, all that remains record coming this year. Um, keep an eye out for it. We'll be on tour in, March and April doing the Fall of Ideals reunion. Uh, check out the stream. It's twitch.tv slash all that remains. And uh, give us a follow on YouTube. It's uh, youtube.com slash all that remains music. James? Yeah, so I'm at Conceptual James across most social media. You can find me mostly on Twitter, where as long as they let me be, uh, I will be. Um, I'm on a lot of other ones. It's the same handle basically everywhere. If I can't get it, I usually raise hell or just don't join. Uh, so you can find me there. My company is New Discourses. Website is newdiscourses.com. And its social media handle is at New Discourses, kind of similarly across everything. My big thing, I mean, I keep forgetting this. So let me actually say it. If you liked cynical theories and you thought it was like kind of academic and hard to read, there's or you wanted to give it to a kid or a teenager or whatever and thought it was a little hard to read, there has been a reader-friendly adaptation of Cynical Theories produced uh, in conjunction with Helen and I. We had the final word on it, although it was adapted by somebody else who brought it the reading level down a couple pages. And um, it just came out like two days ago. It's called Social Injustice. You can pick that up wherever you like to buy books. It went through the publisher, et cetera. It, like, I think the release date was the 18th of January this year, so it just came out. But I have coming out to crap all over that. Besides the counter-woke craft that I mentioned, it, we published through New Discourses. My new book, solo book, comes out next month. Uh, it was going to be the first, but we moved it back to the 15th because of a little bit of backlog on some, some Kindle formatting. But it is called Race Marxism. 
the truth about critical race theory and praxis. And if you want to know what critical race theory is about, where it comes from, what it is, what it does, how it works, it's not, I'm not going to lie, it's not necessarily an easy read. I did an interview about it with somebody yesterday who has read it. He said he thought it actually was very accessible, but I think it's like a bit challenging. But I think if you want the final true word on critical race theory, this is it. This is the first, in fact, my belief is it's the first honest word about critical race theory that's been published in book form. And so not that other people haven't tried, but it's like I got deep. And so I hope you'll pick it up. Um, we're self-publishing it through new discourses, so it's only going to be available uh, for some period of time on Amazon. You can pre-order the ebook or the Kindle right now, but you can't uh, order the paperback until it's actually available. That's some Kindle direct publishing BS. People wonder, oh, you had to self-publish it. No, actually, I got offered 300 grand to sell this book to somebody, and I wanted speed over money. So I'm releasing it self-published despite, I mean, I got offered a huge advance to, to do this book with somebody, uh, and I turned down um, representation and, and a publisher to do it. Actually, I had a few publishers reach out to me about it. So uh, it should be pretty good. I hope you like it. But if you want to understand critical race theory and the title, again, tells you the whole thesis of the book. It's Marxism using race. You can understand that and solidify that argument. And hopefully this will be the shot that actually ends critical race theory's dominion in the West. Uh, and I hope you'll pick it up. So that's the big thing coming up. All right. Well, thanks to both of you, especially you, James. Thanks for taking time out to come on this tiny show and hope everybody got something out of that conversation. I surely did. So uh, like I said, uh, subscribe to the channel, but especially please subscribe to me on Odyssey because YouTube is temporary. And uh, thanks, guys. Have a great rest of your day.